0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot, episode titled The Mysterious Affair at Stiles, where Poirot is a refugee of the Great War and has settled in England near Stiles Court, the country estate of his wealthy benefactor, the elderly Emily Inglethorpe. When Emily is poisoned and the authorities are baffled, Perel puts his sleuthing skills to work. This is Christie's debut novel and the first to feature this famously eccentric Belgian detective. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this nostalgic mystery radio. Thank you for listening.
1: to set down an account of the first time I worked with my esteemed friend Hercule Poirot and now I think the time has come at last to do it.
2: We present John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Simon Williams as Captain Hastings in Agatha Christie's the mysterious affair at Stiles.
1: It was the summer of 1916. I had been invalided home from the front and after spending weeks in a rather depressing convalescent hospital I was given a month's sick leave but having no near relations in England I was rather at a loss what to do with myself.
3: Why don't you come and spend your sick leave with us? We'd love to have you.
1: And then quite by chance I ran across John Cavendish. I hadn't seen him for ages and he insisted on taking me off to his club in Pall Mall.
3: It must be years since you last stayed at Styles. The Mater will be delighted to see you. I suppose you heard that she married again?
1: I certainly had not. Years ago, John's father had taken a second wife. He was a widower with two sons. Emily Cavendish was a handsome woman in her forties, and she had immediately taken charge of everything. So much so that when John's father died, he had left Stiles Court to her for her lifetime, as well as the greater part of his fortune.
3: Mary and I are living there at the moment. Oh, you haven't met my wife, I think. No, I haven't had the pleasure. And Lawrence is there as well, of course. You remember my brother?
1: Yes. Wasn't he going to be a doctor or something of the sort?
3: Oh, yes, and he qualified all right, but his heart really wasn't in it. So now he just wiles away the time writing his verses, though he can never get anyone to publish them. Doesn't earn a penny, of course. And your mother's new husband? Alfred Inglethorpe is an ingratiating little weasel. Not to put too fine a point on it... And his being at Styles is making life very difficult for all of us. How did she come to meet him? Through Evie. Well, she was after your time, I think. Yes, yes, she must have been. Evelyn Howard. She's the Mater's companion and general factotum. Not exactly young and beautiful, but as game as they come. Well, this man, Inglethorpe... Uh, your mother's new husband? Uh, he turned up out of nowhere on the pretense of being a second cousin of Evie's, although she didn't seem to be particularly keen to acknowledge the relationship. The fellow's an absolute outsider. Well, you only have to look at him to see that. Uriah heap in a bushy black beard. (laughs) That's unappetizing. Well, the Mater took him on as her secretary. You know she's always running hundreds of societies, and of course it's got much worse with the war. No doubt this fellow was quite useful to her. But you could have knocked us all down with a feather when three months ago she announced that the two of them were going to be married.
1: How old is this chap?
3: Oh, he's at least 20 years younger than the Mater and he's beginning to have the most abominable influence over her. She can't make a decision without him. But you'll be able to see for yourself when you come down.
1: Life at Stiles Court did not sound exactly promising, but John had always been rather prone to look on the gloomy side of things. He met me at the absurd little station at St. Mary and drove us through the quiet Essex lanes. It seemed almost impossible to believe that, not all that far away, a great war was being fought.
3: I'm afraid you'll find it pretty quiet down here. Oh, but my dear fellow, that's exactly what I want. (laughs) Uh, It's pleasant enough if you're content to lead the idle life. Have you got the time on you? Just after five. Oh, too late to pick up Cynthia, then. She'd have left the hospital by now. Cynthia, that's not your wife. No, Cynthia's a protégé of the Mater's, the daughter of a school friend of hers. She married a rascally solicitor who came a her. He killed himself, his wife died and the poor girl was left an orphan and penniless. The well, Mater came to the rescue and she's been living with us ever since, nearly two years now. She works at the dispensary in the hospital in Tadminster.
1: We turned off through the lodge gates of Styles Court and drove up the long drive. As we stopped in front of the house, a lady in a sturdy tweed skirt straightened up from
3: the flower bed.
4: Back from the station already?
3: I've collected our wounded hero, Evie. This is my old friend Hastings. Welcome to Stiles Court, Captain. (laughs) Thank you, Miss Howard.
4: The garden's keeping you busy, I see. Weeds grow like a house on fire. (laughs) You'd better watch your step or I'll get you working on them too. (laughs) I'm sure I'll
1: be only too delighted to make myself useful. Don't
4: say
3: it. Soon wish you hadn't. Where's tea? Inside or out? Out. Too fine a day to be cooped up in the house. Come on then, Evie, and be refreshed. The labourer is worthy of his hire, you know.
1: Tea was spread out under the shade of a great sycamore. Lawrence was stretched on the grass, reading.
3: You remember my brother, of course.
5: Uh, Very well. Good good to see you, Lawrence. Uh, And you. All things considered, you're looking remarkably well.
3: And this is my wife, Mary.
6: How do you do, Captain Hastings? Sit yourself down. That chair's probably the most comfortable.
1: I shall never forget my first sight of
6: Mary Cavendish.
1: The vivid sense of slumbering fire that seemed to find expression only in those wonderful, tawny eyes of hers.
6: You must be glad to be out of your convalescent home at last. Dreadfully depressing places I've always thought. Oh,
1: I I don't know. One learns to make the best of things, and a sense of humour helps a good deal. Then you will write
7: to the princess, won't you? She should be at Windsor, I think.
5: Here comes the made There's uh, no mistaking that
1: voice, sir. As long as I've known her, she's been trying to persuade someone to open something or other.
7: i will the lines of Lady Tablets so for the second day. Or, or should we wait until we
1: hear from the princess? My dear, do you think it might be better to delay writing to her ladyship? If the princess declines, she will be a perfectly suitable person to open the fete.
3: And that's Inglethorpe. You see what I mean about that preposterous beard?
1: How oh, right you always are,
7: Alfred. <laughs> Ah, but here is Captain Hastings. How delightful to see you at Stiles again, after all these years. Alfred, darling, this
1: is Captain Hastings. Mm, A pleasure to make your acquaintance. Is soldiering your regular profession, Captain? No. Before the war, I was at Lloyd's. And you will return there when the war is over? Perhaps
6: I might well make a fresh start
1: altogether. And
6: what would you choose if you could do exactly as you wished? Well, that depends. What would you really like to
1: do, Captain Hastings? Well, um, uh, to tell the truth, I've always had a secret hankering to be a detective.
5: (laughs) Better than Lloyd's, at any rate.
1: But what kind, Captain? A chief inspector or a Sherlock Holmes? Oh, Sherlock Holmes every time. And have you had any experience of detective work? Well, I can't say I have, but I came across a chap in Belgium before the war, a very fine detective, and he said it all depended on method.
4: Don't mind a good detective story now and then. (laughs) But it's all a load of rubbish, really. Keep you waiting till the last chapter for the criminal to be unmasked. In real life, you would know at once.
5: You mean that if you were involved in a crime, Evie, you'd know the murderer straight away?
4: Of course I would. I'd feel it in my fingertips the moment he came near me. It might be a
6: she. Might be. But murder's more a man's business. Not in a case of poisoning. Isn't that supposed to be the woman's weapon? Dr. Bauerstein, who knows all about these things, says there are probably dozens of murders that go unsuspected because the medical profession knows next to nothing about uncommon poisoning. Oh, what a very gruesome conversation. I, I feel
7: as if a goose were walking over my grave. Ah, oh, but here's Cynthia. You're
8: very late today, my dear. I'm sorry. There was a last minute rush at the dispensary.
1: Cynthia Murdoch looked delightfully fresh in her VAD uniform. She sat down on the grass by my chair, and I handed her the plate of sandwiches.
8: Why don't you come and sit here beside me? It's so much nicer.
1: What a very good idea. <clears throat> You work in the dispensary at Tadminstriar Gala, Miss Murdoch. For my sins. (laughs) And how many people have you poisoned? (laughs) Oh, simply hundreds. (laughs) When you've finished your tea, Cynthia,
7: could you come and write a few notes for me? Of course, Aunt Emily. I'll come straight away. And uh, perhaps we might have a little chat, Captain Hastings, before dinner. I'd love to hear your views about the war. I shall be in my boudoir. Uh,
1: Of course, Mrs. Inglethorpe. I'll be delighted. My bedroom was in the left wing and looked over the park. From my window, I saw John walking slowly across the grass, arm in arm with Cynthia (laughs) Murdoch. She looked so full of life and vigour, in contrast to John, who seemed gloomy and worn out.
7: Cynthia? Cynthia, where are you?
1: The girl rushed off back into the house. From the shadow of the trees, I noticed Lawrence looking after her, very melancholy and every inch the wistful poet. It was time for me to go down and talk to Mrs. Inglethorpe.
7: such a comfort to have a real soldier in the house at last. I could hang my head in shame at the way those stepsons of mine carry on, as if the war had nothing to do with them. Oh, but surely... Oh, I know, I know. Lawrence is slightly lame and John is technically too old for service, but as you well know, Captain Hastings, there are older men than John at the front and boys more disabled than Lawrence. John goes out drilling with the Territorials once a week, but what good does that do? And Lawrence? He writes those miserable little poems of his oozing self-pity. Well, why can't he write something stirring and patriotic? Sons of mine, I hear you thrilling to the trumpet call of war. Oh. Well, at least Mary works with the land volunteers, gets up every morning before five and works till lunchtime. And there's darling Alfred simply straining at the leash to be out there at the front, but I can't spare him. I really
1: can't. You need him for your bazaars and charities.
7: I simply do not know what I would do without that man. And he's put this house on a real war footing. Nothing is wasted at styles not a scrap of food, not a single piece of paper. And we've given up late dinner, of course, as has Lady Tadminster, our, our member's wife. You'll have to be content with a rather spartan supper this evening, Captain Hastings.
1: But for all her talk of economy, supper seemed a positive feast after so many cheerless meals at the convalescent home. That night I was kept awake by the unrelentingly beautiful song of the nightingales, and all my thoughts were of the enigmatic Mary Cavendish. But there was no sign of her in the house the following morning, and it was not until after lunch that she made an appearance.
6: You can't possibly waste a glorious afternoon like this sitting in the library.
1: So we set off on a charming walk through the woods and across the fields.
6: I try to get out as much as I can. It can get quite claustrophobic at times. Two married women shouldn't have to share the same house.
1: Mrs. Inglethorpe can't be an easy woman to live with.
6: Oh, don't misunderstand me, Captain Hastings. I have a great affection for Emily. But she does insist on having her own way. And she treats John and Lawrence as if they were still (laughs) schoolboys. It wasn't too bad until Alfred Inglethorpe came on the scene, but now she won't listen to anyone except darling Alfred. Oh, sometimes I wish... (sighs) What do you wish? No, don't let's talk about it any more. It's much too lovely a day. We'll cut across down to the stream. We might see a kingfisher. But we mustn't be too long. I promised John we'd be back by five.
3: Thank God you're here at last. There's the very deuce of a mess. Evie's had a row with Inglethorpe, and she's been given her marching orders.
6: But, but Why? What actually happened?
3: And apparently she went to the mater and... Uh, but here she is. She can tell you herself.
4: Well, I've spoken my mind at any rate. Evie, this simply can't be true. It's true enough. I said a few things to Emily. She won't forget in a hundred. There's no fool like an old fool, I told her. That man's 20 years younger than you. And don't kid yourself. He's after anything but your money. And why do you think he's spending so much time down by Long Farm? Mrs Rakes is a very pretty woman. And he doesn't go over there just to talk about how our crops are doing. Good Lord. And what did she say to that? She said I was a wicked woman to tell such terrible lies about darling Alfred, and the sooner I left the house, the better. So I'm off. But not now, surely? This very minute. Do you think you could run me down to the station, Mr Cavendish?
3: I'll go and check the times of the train.
6: At least wait until I've had a word with Emily, Evie. I I can't believe
4: this is happening. Captain Hastings, you're an honest man, I can tell that. Look after my poor Emily if you can. There are a lot of sharks here, all of them. They're only waiting for her to die so they can get their hands on her money. I've protected her as much as I can but I tremble to think what may happen when I'm gone. Just keep your eyes open, and above all, watch out for that devil, her husband.
1: Evie went upstairs and brought down her luggage. The Inglethorpes did not appear. As John drove her off down the drive, I noticed Mary going out to meet a tall, bearded man who was evidently heading for the house. Who's that chap kissing Mary Cavendish's hand?
8: Oh, that's Dr. Bauerstein. He's staying in the village. He's a London specialist who's apparently come down here to recover from some kind of nervous breakdown.
1: Is that the chap Mrs. Cavendish said knew so much about poison? Mm,
8: one of the greatest living experts, so they say. He's a great friend of hers. Hmm.
1: I didn't care for the look of him very much. Too many black beards around Stiles. And I cared even less for his being a great friend of Mary's. When John came back from the station, we took a walk through the plantation. As we came to one of the gates, a young, gypsy-looking woman, coming in the opposite direction, bowed her head and smiled.
3: Afternoon. What an
1: astonishingly pretty girl.
3: That is Mrs. Rakes.
1: The woman Evie was trying to warn your mother
3: about? Exactly.
1: Will Stiles come to you when your stepmother dies.
3: It should be mine now, by rights. If my father had only made a decent will, then I shouldn't be so damned hard up.
1: Nothing's really that bad.
3: My dear Hastings, I don't mind telling you I'm at my wit's end for money. The mate has always kept us on a pretty tight rein, and she still doles out her allowance as if it were pocket money. So humiliating. I'm a middle-aged married man, for goodness sake. Of course, since the war broke out, she can't think about anything but her bazaars and charities. Darling Alfred is at the centre of it all, of course, and he believes he can twist around his little finger. But I'll be damned if he's going to get his hands on Stiles.
1: The days drifted lazily by without anything particular to mark their passing, but I began to feel that something had changed with the departure of Evelyn Howard. Her presence had spelt security. But now that security had been removed, the air seemed rife with suspicion. A vague distrust of everyone and everything filled my mind. It was quite a relief to get a letter from Evie.
4: I've got a job as a nurse in the hospital in Middlingham. It's only 14 miles from Stiles and I can be over in half an hour if I'm needed. Please keep an eye on Emily, Captain Hastings, and let me know if she shows any sign of a change of heart. Sooner or later she must see that devil for what he is, and realise what a fool he's made of her.
1: A spell of extraordinarily hot weather set in. Mary Cavendish went off for longer and longer expeditions with Dr Bauerstein. What could she possibly see in the fellow? <music> On the 16th, which was a Monday, there was a charity concert in the village hall.
5: We've all got to rally around. The mate who wants to make a real splash with this one.
1: We spent all day arranging and decorating the place. Supper was served early, but we all had rather a scramble to be ready on time and before the meal was over, the car was waiting at the door.
9: But ma'am, you have not have your medicine? Oh, don't bother me with that now, Dawkins. Dr well, Wilkins said that on no account was you to miss taking it, ma'am. He was most insistent.
7: It will do me no harm to go without it, for once. I've more important things to attend to.
1: The really important thing was a patriotic poem which Mrs Inglethorpe delivered with considerable gusto.
7: Who's for the trench? Are you, my laddie? Who'll follow French? Will you, my laddie? Who's fretting to begin? Who's going to win? And who wants to save his skin?
1: Do you, my laddie? Of course, it was all a tremendous success. Cynthia took part in some of the tableau and looked quite stunningly pretty.
8: I'm not coming back to Stiles tonight, Captain Hastings. I've already arranged to stay with some friends.
1: The following morning, Mrs Inglethorpe kept to her room, saying she was overtired. Mary Cavendish said she was going off somewhere with Dr Bowerstein. I felt rather at a loose end.
5: Why don't we pay a surprise visit to Cynthia in her dispensary? We could take the trap, since the mater won't be using it.
1: Well, what a lot of bottles. Do you really know what's in them all?
8: Oh, for goodness sake, say something original. Every single person who comes here says that, and the next thing they say is... How
1: many people have you poisoned? (laughs) I said it the first time we met.
8: If you really knew how fatally easy it is to poison somebody by mistake, you wouldn't joke about it. We have to be very careful who we let loose in here.
5: So, where do you keep all these poisons of yours?
8: In the little cupboard by the window. And in the one next to it, there are all kinds of secret treats.
5: (laughs) Ah, chocolate biscuits and the remains of a seed cake.
8: We can have tea out on the balcony. It's a lovely day and there's a beautiful view along the river.
5: I'll join you in a moment.
1: The view wasn't all that remarkable, but it was a warm afternoon, the sun was shining and it was pleasant to have Cynthia to myself for a moment or two.
8: Where on earth has Lawrence got to? His tea will be getting cold. Lawrence, what are you doing? Come and have your tea. Sorry.
5: Sorry, just taking a look around. Fascinating place.
1: Fortunately, Lawrence went off to see a friend after tea and Cynthia and I took the trap back to Stiles. As we drove through the village, I remembered I needed some stamps. As I was coming out of the post office, I cannoned into a little man who was just entering. (laughs) Oh, la, la. A little man with a head exactly the shape of an egg. ...and a stiff military moustache. Ah,
10: mon ami, I I cannot believe it! What a marvellous surprise to see you here! Poirot! Oh,
1: Oh, uh, Miss Murdoch, Uh, this is my old friend, Hercule Poirot. I haven't seen him for years, and here he is in style St Mary.
8: Oh, we all know Monsieur Poirot, but I'd no idea he was a friend of yours.
10: I have met mademoiselle Cynthia many times with the good (laughs) madame Inglethorpe. You know Mrs Inglethorpe already? Yes, my friend. It is by her charity that I am here. How's that? When the Germans invaded Belgium, I joined the resistance. But I was forced to take refuge in France and then made my way to your country. I had heard that Madame Ingerthorpe had given shelter to a number of my compatriots in this village and I came here. She made me welcome and found a room for me in the house she had taken for Belgian refugees. I shall be eternally grateful to her. Oh, you must tell me the
1: whole story. I shall come and see you as soon as possible. It'll be just like old times. I shall look forward
10: to it, my friend. (laughs) Goodbye, Monsieur Poirot. Goodbye, Mademoiselle.
8: He's such a dear little man. How could you come to meet him?
1: I needed no encouragement. And all the way back, I regaled her with stories of my old friend. The heat of the day still lingered at Stiles Court when we returned that evening. As we walked into the house, Mrs. Inglethorpe came out of her boudoir. She looked flushed and upset.
8: Are you all right, Aunt Emily? Is there
7: something the matter? Yes, certainly not. Why should there be? Dorcas? Oh, Dorcas. Yes, madam. Can you find me some stamps and bring them up to my bedroom? Yes, madam.
9: But don't you think you ought to rest? You're looking very tired. You must not
7: fuss, Dorcas. I need to finish my letters in time to catch the post. Have you lighted the fire in my room, as I told you to?
9: Yes, madam. Good. Well,
7: I shall go to bed directly after supper. Yes, ma'am. Goodness gracious.
8: I wonder what's up.
1: Mrs Inglethorpe does look a bit grim, but I suppose it's none of our business. Do you think there's time for a quick game of tennis before supper? I'm sure there is.
8: My racket's in the conservatory.
1: I'll go and get it. Mine's in my room. I'll see you on the court. Oh, good evening, Captain Hastings. Good evening. Did you have a pleasant walk with Dr Barstow?
6: I didn't go, as it happens. Do you know where Mrs Inglethorpe is? Uh, She's in her boudoir, I believe. I must speak to her.
1: She looked as if she was nerving herself for a particularly grim encounter. As I was making my way towards the tennis court a few minutes later, I couldn't help overhearing a scrap of conversation from the open window of Mrs Inglethorpe's boudoir. Then
6: you won't show it to me, my dear in that case, you can show it. There is nothing in it that concerns you. Of course and I might have known you would
1: shield him. Fascinating though it all was, I could hardly stand and listen to a private conversation, and Cynthia was waiting for me on the tennis court.
8: I say there's been the most frightful row. I got it all out of Dorcas. What kind of row? Between Aunt Emily and Inglethorpe. What about? Well, she's obviously found him out at last, hmm. and she was making it very clear that she wasn't going to let him get away with it. Get away with what? Dorcas doesn't know exactly. She just happened to be near the door. I'm praying that Aunt Emily will give him his marching orders and never speak to him again.
1: Supper was a distinctly chilly affair. John sat there in stony silence. Mary appeared nervous and agitated. Lawrence gazed abstractedly into space And Inglethorpe, who, as a rule, fussed over his wife with little attentions, sat there staring gloomily down into his big black beard.
7: Uh, Mary, will you send my coffee into the boudoir? I've just got
6: five minutes to catch the post.
1: Cynthia and I went and sat by the open window in the drawing room.
6: Do you young people want the lamps on, or do you prefer to sit here in the twilight? Oh, I'd much rather watch it growing dark. Will you take Emily her coffee, Cynthia? I'll pour it. Do not trouble yourself, Mary. I'll pour it. As you wish, Mr. Inglethorpe. Oh, it's almost too hot. We shall have a thunderstorm. Who on earth can that be at this time of night?
1: Of course it had to be Dr Bauerstein who spun some cock-and-bull story about falling into a pond while trying to get at a rare species of fern. His trousers were thick with mud and he looked completely ludicrous, but Mary seemed quite unperturbed and John was remarkably affable.
3: You must sit down and have a coffee and tell us all about it. Cynthia!
7: Yes, Aunt Emily? Carry my dispatch case up for me, will you? I'm going to bed. Yes, Aunt Emily? Have you finished your coffee? No, I haven't touched it yet. I'll take it up with me. Good
1: night.
6: Good night.
1: Good night. The evening had been completely spoiled by the wretched Bowerstein. It seemed as if he would never go. But eventually he rose and prepared to take his leave. I'll walk down to the village with you, Doctor. I must have a word with our agent about the estate accounts before I go to bed. There's no need for anyone to wait up, John. I take the key with me. As he went out, there was a clap of thunder, and he looked more than ever like the Demon King in a pantomime. But as the summer storm drew nearer, I felt a strange premonition of evil, of some fate that was to break in on us and change Stiles Court forever. What is it? What's the matter? Come in, for goodness sake.
5: Lawrence, what is it? It's Mother. She seems to be having some kind of fit, but she's locked herself in her room.
1: I sprang out of bed at once and followed Lawrence along the gallery to the right wing of the house. The servants were standing around in a state of awe-stricken excitement.
3: Oh, Hastings, what shall we do? Oh, the door's either locked or bolted.
9: Oh, poor mistress... Why don't you try going full in Mr. Inglethorpe's room, sir? Oh, of
3: course, Dorcas. Why didn't I think of that? Where is Inglethorpe, anyway? Oh, God only knows. Let's hope this door's not locked.
5: His bed's not been slept in. Where the devil has he got to? Oh, the connecting
3: door's locked on the other side. She must be in agony.
5: Isn't there a connecting door to Cynthia's room?
3: It's always kept locked, sir. Well, it's still worth trying. Come on. Mm.
5: Mary.
6: Cynthia's sound asleep. I've been trying to wake her for ages. Uh, oh. It's no good trying contri- the connecting door, Lawrence. It's <sighs> locked.
1: She was dressed ready for work in her land volunteer's smock. I realised that it must be five o'clock, much later than I had thought.
3: There's nothing for it. We'll have to break in. The door from Inglethorpe's room is probably our best bet. Oh. Uh, Dorcas, go and tell Bailey to get the trap and fetch Dr. Wilkins at once.
1: Yes, Mr. Lawrence. The door looks pretty solid to me, but the two of us ought to be able to manage it again and again
3: she's having convulsions of some sort annie go down to the dining room and get the brandy
1: yes sir
3: i'll unbolt the door to the corridor
1: best not to have too many people standing around for lawrence i'll go back to my what's the matter man
5: nothing it's just his face was as white
1: as chalk the candle he held in his shaking hand was spluttering on the carpet his eyes, petrified with terror, stared fixedly beyond me to some point on the wall.
6: Cynthia's all right
8: now. It's all been a bit of a shock for oh, her. Been such a deep sleep. I can come out of here. Poor oh, Aunt Emily.
6: Sorry, of course so much
8: fuss. Stupid old me.
7: lock myself in.
6: Don't try to talk. Dr. Wilkins will be here soon. Oh.
7: Just try to
3: What on earth's the matter with
6: her? Oh, oh. let
3: me talk. I don't see it. Oh.
11: Alfred oh, oh, Fred. Stand back from the bed, if you please.
1: But his expression gave us little cause for hope. I think we all knew in our hearts that there was nothing Dr. Bowerstein could do
11: to help her. I came too late. I am sorry.
6: But how did you come to be here?
11: I happened to be passing by the lodge gate when I met Bailey on his way to get the doctor from the village. Why did you not send for him earlier? Mother was locked in her room. We didn't know what was the matter.
8: Dr. Wilkins
11: is here. Uh, then bring him in here at once. Uh, and if the rest of you have no objection, I would like you to leave Dr. Wilkins and myself alone in here for a short while, of course.
6: Why is Dr. Bauerstein behaving so strangely, do you think? I have a suspicion. Yes? He thinks Mrs. Inglethorpe may have been
10: poisoned.
6: Poison? But that's impossible. It can't be true. (laughs) Leave me alone for a minute or two, will you, Captain Hastings? Go down and join the others.
3: Where on earth is Inglethorpe? Has anyone seen him? Well, he went down to the village last night to have a word with a land agent. I suppose he must have stayed there.
8: It's quite light already. What time is it?
5: Nearly six o'clock.
3: Mr. Cavendish, may I have a word? Yes, Dr. Barstine.
11: Dr. Wilkins and I have examined the body, and we would like you to give your consent to a post-mortem. Is that really necessary? I am afraid that neither Dr Wilkins nor I could give a death certificate under the present circumstances. Well, then you leave me no alternative but to agree. I think it would be best if the post-mortem were to take place later today. I have locked both Mrs Inglethorpe's room and that of her husband. Here are the keys.
1: All my detective instincts were aroused. I hurried down to the library to consult Lawrence's old medical textbooks.
3: So that's where you've got to... I'm sorry to have let you in for this terrible business, Hastings. It's hardly the kind of rescue I had in mind. Oh, no,
1: don't you worry yourself about that. There's something I want to ask you. Yeah. You remember my speaking of my old friend, Akil Poirot? Mm. He's staying at the Belgian house in the village. He used to be a famous detective. Well... I want you to let me call him in. What now? Before the post-mortem? The sooner the better, if there's been any
5: foul play. You surely can't believe that. It, it, it's just a wild notion of Bowerstein's. Poisons
3: are his speciality. He sees them everywhere. I only wish I could believe that, Lawrence, but I can't. You, you're sure there won't be any unnecessary scandal? Poirot is discretion itself. Then I leave it all in your hands. So if there has been foul play, there's not much doubt who's responsible.
1: I'll go straight away.
3: I'll cut across the
1: park. Captain Hastings! Captain Hastings! I've only just heard about
12: my poor Emily.
1: Is it really true? I'm afraid it is, Mr. Inglethorpe. But where have you been all this time? Everyone's looking for you. I was going over the accounts late last night with the agent, Denby. Oh. And when I came to leave, I found I'd forgotten to take the latchkey. I did not wish to wake the household. So I spent the night there. So how did you hear the news? Wilkins knocked up Denby to tell him. But I must not stay here talking. Poor Emily... She must have overtaxed her strength! Fortunately, he did not ask me where I was going, and in a few minutes, I was sitting in Poirot's room at Leastway's cottage, telling
10: him the whole story. Now, one little moment, my friend. What makes you think this is a case of strychnine poisoning? Did, uh, did Dr Barstein say so? No, I looked up the symptoms in a medical textbook of Lawrence's. Good. Pray continue. All the time
1: I was speaking, he was making a careful and elaborate toilet, I fear I was not always as clear
10: as I could have wished. Uh, The mind is confused, is it not? You are agitated, you are excited. To that I attribute the circumstance that you have omitted one most important fact. What's that? You have not told me whether Mrs. Inglethorpe ate well last night.
1: I don't see why it's that important. As far as I can remember, she didn't eat
10: very much at all. She was obviously upset and had lost her appetite. It was very natural. Yes, as you say, it was natural. Ha, and now I am ready. Ah! Ah! A moment, mon ami. Hmm? You dressed in haste. And your tie is crooked. Allow me. But you still haven't told me why
1: it's so important to know whether Mrs. Inglethorpe ate well or
10: not. It is not my habit to explain such things until the end is reached. Hmm. But in this case, I will make an exception. In looking through your friend's textbook... You probably did not observe that the effects of strychnine poisoning usually show themselves in about one hour. But with Mrs. Inglethorpe, they appear to have taken nearly nine hours. A heavy meal might have retarded the effect. However, since you say that she ate very little, we are faced with the most curious circumstance.
3: Has Hastings explained to you, Monsieur Poirot, that we are most anxious to avoid any publicity? I comprehend perfectly. Good, then I'm at your
10: service. May I have the keys to the room in which your mother died? Of course.
3: Consider yourself free to go wherever you wish.
1: Once inside the room, Poirot relocked the door and put his attaché case down on a little round table, which promptly collapsed. Oh la la! He darted about with the agility of a grasshopper, tried the bolts on both doors, found something which he scraped into a tiny envelope. On the chest of drawers was a tray with a spirit lamp and a small saucepan on it, containing some dark
10: fluid, with an empty cup and saucer nearby. Cocoa with, uh, yes, I think a little rum in it. And observe, on the floor, a smashed coffee cup. Obviously someone trod on it. Mm. rather more than that, I think. He went
1: over to the mantelpiece where he stood straightening the spill holders and ornaments, A trick of
10: his when he was agitated. That cup has been deliberately crowned underfoot, almost to powder, Hmm. either because it contains strychnine or, which is far more serious, because it did not contain strychnine.
1: He continued his examination for the best part of half an hour, and then he took out a little
10: notebook. We have found in this room six points of interest. Shall I enumerate them? Please, go ahead. One... The coffee cup. Two, a purple dispatch box containing papers which must be examined as quickly as possible, but which at present I have no authority to look at. Three, a stain on the carpet. That may date from some time ago. No, 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 no. It is still perceptibly damp and smells of coffee. Four, a thread of some dark green fabric caught on the bolt of the door to Mademoiselle Cynthia's room. You think that may be relevant? At this stage, mon ami, everything is relevant. Five. This large splash of canter grease on the floor by the writing table.
1: That was probably Lawrence. He was carrying the only candle, and he was very agitated. He kept on staring at something over on that wall.
10: Ah. That is very suggestive. But it was not his candle that did it. This is white grease... His candle, which is still on the dressing table, is pink. So, how do you account for it? Oh, you must choose your own natural faculties, mon ami. And I suppose your sixth point is the cocoa? No, the sixth point I shall keep to myself for the moment. So, uh, does this conclude your examination? I think so. Unless there is something in the ashes of the fireplace... Oh, mon Dieu, there is... The forceps is Ah. There. What do you make of that? Uh, a, a
1: tiny scrap of charred paper. The remains of someone's handwriting. Not much to go
10: on. Look more closely, my friend.
1: Uh, it might be a, a double L followed by an
10: and. And what does that suggest to you? Well, nothing much. No, 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 no. Think of words ending in double L, my friend. Um, uh, call, pull, pill, will. Ah, exactly, will. Will, will,
1: and testament. It's the fragment of a
10: burnt will. I had rather expected to find something of the sort. <gasps> and now, Hissings, we will go. I would like to have a little word with the housekeeper. Um, Dorcas, is it not? I took him down to the boudoir and went off to fetch Dorcas.
1: When I returned, he had opened the French windows and was gazing down at the beds of begonias.
10: Ah, admirable! What symmetry! The neatness of the work of the gardeners rejoices the eye. Dorcas is here. Oh, no, do not begrudge me a moment's satisfaction, mon ami. But surely it's more important that you speak to Dorcas. But how do you know that these flower beds are not of equal importance? (sighs) But let us talk with the good lady.
9: I just can't get over it, sir.
10: She was a very good mistress to me. Then I hope you will not object to answering a few questions. I put them to you with the full approval of Mr. Cavendish. Yes, sir. Let us begin with the events of yesterday afternoon. I understand that you heard your mistress having some sort of quarrel.
9: I just happened to be passing through the hall... when I heard angry voices coming from this room.
10: At what time was this, mademoiselle? It was about four o'clock, I think. You must understand that I didn't intend to listen, sir. Oh, I do understand, Dorcas. continue.
9: The door was shut, but the mistress was speaking very loud and clear. You've lied to me and deceived me, she said. I didn't hear what Mr. Inglethorpe said in reply... He spoke a good deal lower than she did. But then she said, nothing you can say will make any difference. I see my duty clearly. You need not think that fear of publicity of scandal between husband and wife will deter me. And and then I thought they were coming out, so I went off quickly.
10: Now, you are sure it was Mr. Inglethorpe's voice you heard?
9: Oh, yes, sir. Who else could it be? So what happened next? It was five o'clock. Mrs. Ingleport rang the bell and asked me to bring her a cup of tea to the boudoir. She was looking dreadful. Dorcas, she says to me, I've had a great shock. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, ma'am. I says, you'll feel better after a nice cup of tea. She had something in her hand. I don't know if it was a letter or just a piece of paper, but it had writing on it. And she kept staring at it, almost as if she couldn't believe what was written there. She whispered to herself as if she'd forgotten I was in the room. These few words, she says, and everything's changed. And then she says, Never trust a man, Dorcas. They're not
1: worth it. So, what did you do then?
9: Well, I hurried off and got her a good strong cup of tea and she thanked me. And then she says, I don't know what to do. Scandal between husband and wife is a dreadful thing, Dorcas. I'd rather hush it up if I could. But Mrs Cavendish came in just then, so she didn't say any more.
10: And what became of the letter, or whatever it was? I don't know, sir.
9: She probably locked it up in that purple case of hers.
10: Is that where she normally kept important papers?
9: Yes, sir. She brought it down with her every morning and took it up every night.
10: Now tell me, did your mistress possess a green dress?
9: Oh, no, sir. She couldn't buy green.
10: Does anyone else in the house have a green dress?
9: Miss Cynthia has a green chiffon evening gown. Oh,
10: no, no, no. No, chiffon is not what I want. Let us pass on. Do you know whether your mistress had a sleeping powder last night?
9: Not last night, sir. The box was empty. She took the last one two days ago, and she didn't have any more made up.
10: Now, I understand that your mistress was busy writing letters yesterday evening. Can you give me any idea to whom they were addressed?
9: I'm afraid I can't, sir. I was out in the evening. And as a result, Annie never cleared away the coffee cups after dinner. That's what happens when I'm not here to look after things.
10: Well, since they have been left, Dorcas, leave them a little longer. They might have something to tell us. Well, I have nothing more to ask. Uh. Thank you, Dorcas. Now, will you please send Annie here? Uh, Yes, sir.
9: Thank you, sir.
10: How did you know Mrs. Engleford took sleeping powders? I found an empty box in the washstand drawer in her bedroom. That was my sixth point of interest. And what was very curious was that there was no chemist's name on the label. That's certainly very odd. there may be a perfectly simple explanation. Ah, but here is Annie. Uh, come in, mademoiselle, and please sit down.
8: Thank you, sir.
10: Now, I want to ask you about the letters Mrs. Inglethorpe wrote last night. Can you remember any of the names and addresses?
8: There was one to a lawyer, Mr. Wells. I remember that. And there was one to Ross's, the caterers in Tabminster. And that's all I can remember. You're sure? There was another. It slipped my memory.
10: Well, it will come back to you. Now, I want to ask you about the little saucepan in Mrs. Inglethorpe's room.
8: The one for the cocoa, sir?
10: Yes. Tell me, how did she take her cocoa?
8: Oh, with milk and one teaspoonful of sugar and two teaspoonfuls of rum.
10: And who took it to her home? I did, sir. And did you bring the saucepan straight up from the kitchen?
8: No, sir. There's not much room on the gas stove while dinner's cooking, so cook used to make the cocoa early. I put it on the table by the swing door and took it up to the mistress later.
10: So how long was the cocoa left standing on the table?
8: From about 7.15 until 8, when I took it up to her. And there was no salt in it, so it wasn't me.
10: Mm? Hmm? What makes you think there was salt in it, Annie?
8: There was some on the tray, sir. Did
10: you notice some salt on the tray?
8: Yes, sir. Common kitchen salt, it looked like. I couldn't see any in the cocoa, so I dusted the salt off with my apron and took the tray up. I hope I did right, sir.
10: But this explains everything. It was the cocoa and not the coffee that was poisoned. Do you think that the cocoa contains stricken? Of course. The salt on the tray, what else could it have been? It might have been salt. Oh, for goodness sake, Poirot. Ah, oh, you are not pleased with me, mon ami. My dear Poirot, it's not for me to dictate to you. You have a right to your opinion
1: as I have a right to mine.
10: Good. So, let us examine the coffee cups. What
1: on earth's the good of that now we know about the cocoa?
10: Come, come, my friend. Ne vous fâchez pas. Allow me to interest myself in the coffee cups, and I will respect your cocoa. <laughs>
1: Easy to bargain. He was so quaintly humorous that I was forced to laugh. And so we went into the drawing-room, where the coffee-cups had been left from the previous evening.
10: So Mrs. Cambridge stood by the tray and poured out. Then she came across to the window where you were sitting with mademoiselle Cynthia. Yes, here are the cups. And the cup on the mantelpiece, half-drunk. That would be the cup of Mr. Lawrence. And the one on the tray?
1: John Cavendish's. I saw him put it down there. But
10: where is the cup of Mr. Inglethorpe? He doesn't take coffee. Ah, good. Then all are accounted for.
1: With infinite care, he took a specimen from the grounds of each cup, sealing them in separate little test tubes, tasting each in turn. There was a strange expression on his face, half puzzlement and half relief.
3: I trust I'm not disturbing you, Monsieur Poirot, but breakfast is ready. Will you join us? It would be a pleasure. Can you uh, tell me whether you think my mother died a natural death, or must we prepare ourselves for the worst? I think you would do well not to
10: deceive yourself with any
3: false hopes. What are the views of the other members of your family? My brother Lawrence is convinced we're all making a fuss about nothing. And Mrs. Cavendish? I haven't the least idea of my wife's views on the subject... But what the devil are we going to do about Inglethorpe? One's gorge rather rises at sitting down to eat with a man who's probably a murderer.
1: At breakfast there were no red eyes, no signs of secretly indulged grief. Inglethorpe acted the bereaved widower. Mary Cavendish was as enigmatic as a sphinx. Cynthia Murdoch appeared tired and ill, and greatly disconcerted Poirot when she told him she did not take sugar in her coffee.
9: Excuse me, Mr. Cavendish, but Mr. Wells is here to see you.
3: You'll show him into my study, will you, Dorcas? Yes. sir. Mr. Wells is my mother's lawyer. Uh, Perhaps you'd like to come with me, Monsieur Poirot, and you too, of course, Hastings.
13: This is a most unhappy business, Mr. Cavendish.
3: I'm sure you understand, Wells, that this must all be kept strictly private. We're still hoping there will turn out to be no need for an investigation
13: of any kind. I should be failing in my duty if I were to encourage you in that hope. There is no chance of sparing you the pain and publicity of an inquest. It's quite unavoidable in the absence of a doctor's
3: certificate. I suppose it is. When will it be? Well, if
13: you've no objection, I thought of Friday. That'll give us plenty of time after today's post-mortem. Will that arrangement suit you? Oh, yes.
3: The sooner we get it over with, the better.
10: I need not tell you how distressed I am by the whole tragic affair. Could you perhaps give us some help in solving the mystery, Mr. Wells? I would be only too delighted to do so, if it's in my power. Apparently, Mrs. Inglethorpe wrote a letter to you last night. You should have received it this morning. I did, but it was
13: merely a note asking me to call on her today, as she wanted my advice on a matter of great importance. But she gave no hint as to what the matter might be. That is a pity.
10: Mr. Wells, if it is not against professional etiquette, can you tell us... Who inherits Mrs. Inglethorpe's fortune in the event of her death? If Mr. Cavendish does not object.
13: Not at all. Go ahead. By her last will, dated April of last year, she left her entire fortune to her stepson, Mr. John Cavendish. It's possible, of course, that somewhere there may be a later will. There is a later will, Mr.
10: Wells. Or rather, there was. What do you mean? Where is it now? This charred fragment... Is all that remains of it. Hastings and I found it in the grate of Mrs. Inglethorpe's bedroom earlier this morning. But when did she make it? Sometime yesterday afternoon, I believe. You can ask the gardeners who were working just outside the window. She must have called them in to witness it. There was mud on the step of the French window.
11: So that
1: was why you were so interested in the begonias. Mm
3: -hmm. But it is an extraordinary coincidence she should make a new will on the day of her death. Not that extraordinary, surely. What do you mean by that?
13: But you told me that your stepmother had a violent quarrel with somebody yesterday afternoon. And in consequence, she might well have made another will. Good Lord. What's all that noise? It's Evelyn Howard. She's come back. Well, in that case, since I'm sure you'll want to speak to her, let's take a short break. I need to examine some of the papers in your mother's room.
3: Thank you, Wells. Perhaps you would care to come with me, Monsieur Poirot?
4: I'd just come off duty when I heard the news. Hired a car. Quickest way to get
3: here. I'll get Dorcas to find you some breakfast. Evie, this is Monsieur Farrow. He's helping us. Helping you do what? Investigate my mother's death. Nothing to investigate. Why isn't Inglethorpe in prison? I can hardly drag him down to the police station by the scruff of the neck. Well, find
4: out how he did it. There's a soaked flypapers. Ask Cook if she's missed any.
3: I'll make a point of it. Mademoiselle,
10: may I ask a favour of you? Ask away. I want to be able to count on your help.
4: I'll help you to hang Alfred Inglethorpe with pleasure. Oh,
10: believe me, if Mr. Inglethorpe is the man, I will hang him as high as Haman. But I must ask you to trust me. Your help will be invaluable, and I will tell you why. Because in all this house, yours are the only eyes that have wept. I I watched over her, you see.
4: I guarded her from, from the rest of them. And then this scoundrel came along and all my years of devotion went for nothing.
3: Will you come up to my stepmother's room, Monsieur Poirot? mm mm-hmm. says Mr. Wells is ready to go through the papers in her dispatch case. and I believe you still have the keys.
10: If you will permit me, Mr. Wells, I locked it earlier this morning as a precaution. That's very odd. What is odd, Mr.
3: Wells? The case is unlocked. Impossible. We'll see for yourself. Oh. The lock has evidently been forced. But the door was locked. I'm afraid that most of the keys to the rooms in this corridor would
10: have fitted it. Fool that I am, I should never have left the case out of my hands. He
1: walked over to the mantelpiece. His hands were trembling violently as they mechanically straightened
10: the vases of paper spills. There was something in that case which linked the murderer to the crime. It was obviously vital that it should be destroyed. But it was a great risk for the murderers to take. What do you think it could have been? Mm, a document of some kind. Perhaps the paper that Dorcas saw in Mrs. Inglethorpe's hand. And now, sealed that I am, I have allowed it to be snatched away. The good lady was very generous to us Belgians, and I am greatly indebted to her. And now, through my thoughtlessness, her murderer may never be brought to justice.
6: Extraordinary little friend, Captain Hastings. He's just rushed past me like a mad bull. He's rather upset about something. Tell me, have
1: Mr. Inglethorpe and Miss Howard run into one another since she came back?
6: John's been trying to keep them apart, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. I can't imagine Inglethorpe's very keen to see her again.
6: Do you think it would be such a disaster if they did meet? Why, don't you? No. I should like to see a really good flare-up. It would clear the air. At present, we're all thinking too much and saying too little... Oh, but here comes your friend. I shall leave him to you. Au revoir, monsieur
9: Poirot.
6: Au
10: revoir, oh. madame. Well, at least I have alerted everyone, Hastings. Mm. The servants will know now what to look for. But is this wise, Poirot?
1: Mm? Surely you don't want the whole house to know that someone has broken into Mrs. Inglethorpe's dispatch case? Aren't you playing into the murderer's hands? You think so, Hastings? I'm sure of it. Oh, very well,
10: my friend. I will be guided by you. Unfortunately, it's rather too late now. Mm. You may be all right.
8: I'm leaving so soon, Monsieur
10: Poirot. Yes, Mademoiselle, I am going back to my cottage to put my little grey cells to work on the problem. Mm.
8: What a funny way to put it.
10: But there is something I would like to ask you, Mademoiselle Cynthia.
8: Yes? What is
10: it? In the door of the washstand in Mrs. Inglethorpe's room, I discovered an empty box which had contained sleeping powders. Yes? Did you make them up for her, Mademoiselle? Yes, I did. Can you tell me what they were? Sulfonal? veronal?
8: No. Um, they were bromide powders.
10: Thank you. I was curious, voyez because of the label on the box being blank.
8: I'm sure they were perfectly harmless.
10: Uh-huh. I never doubted it. Come here, Steen, of Or mademoiselle. There can't really be very much doubt as to the identity of the murderer. You think not? It can only be, Inglethorpe. It stands to reason. And yet, my friend, there are certain points in his favour. I can only think of one. And what is that? That he was not in the house last night. On the contrary, you have chosen the one point that counts against him. How's that? If Mr. Inglethorpe knew that his wife would be poisoned, he would certainly have arranged to be away from the house. So, if the coroner's jury returns a verdict of willful murder against Alfred Inglethorpe... I should not allow it. <laughs> you would not allow it. No, Hastings, I would not.
1: I say, Mr. Poirot.
10: Yes, what is it? You remember me, Mr. Mace, from the chemist's shop. Of course, Mr. Mace. Have you just come from the hall? Yes, we have. And is it true what they're saying, that Mrs. Inglethorpe has been poisoned? That is for the doctors to decide. It wasn't strictly, was it? If you have any information on that point, Mr Mace, I think you should report it to the coroner.
1: In the days preceding the inquest I saw remarkably little of Poirot. He spent most of his time taking long walks around the countryside. Very uncharacteristic for a man who took such obsessive pride in the polish of his shoes.
10: You're in from the old, aren't you?
1: Uh yes, I'm looking for a friend of mine, as a matter of fact.
14: Uh, that Belgian Bloke.
1: Yes, that's the one.
14: He's been here all right. The gentlemen from the old don't seem to be able to keep themselves away from Rake's farm.
1: Why? Do other gentlemen come this way, then?
14: One does. And more than one. Not that I'm naming any names, mind.
10: Is it
1: possible that Mrs. Inglethorpe could have swallowed the poison by accident... The inquest was heard in the stylites' arms. Poirot and I sat together, listening to the evidence of the toxicology expert witness, Mary's friend, Dr. Bauerstein.
11: I would consider it most unlikely. Strychnine is not used for domestic purposes, and there are restrictions placed on its sale.
10: Then, could it have been administered in Mrs. Inglethorpe's after-dinner coffee? Uh,
11: it is possible, but strychnine is a fairly rapid drug in its action. The fact that the symptoms did not manifest themselves until nearly four o'clock in the morning would seem to point to the coffee having been drunk long after Mrs. Inglethorpe took it up with her. I understand she
1: was in the habit of drinking a cup of cocoa in the middle of the night. Could the strychnine have been administered in that? Ah, now
11: coming to it. Cocoa could never conceal the bitter taste of strychnine. But to make certain, I took a sample of the cocoa remaining in the saucepan, and the analysis showed no trace of the poison. What
10: did I tell you, mon ami?
11: Thank you, Dr. Barstone.
1: And then Lawrence Cavendish was called. He came up with a quite extraordinary suggestion.
5: Of course, I may be wrong, but it still seems to me that my stepmother's death might be accounted for by natural means. And how do you make that out, Mr. Cavendish? At the time of her death, and for some time before it, she was taking a tonic which contained strychnine. I believe there have been cases where the cumulative effect of the drug, administered for some time, has ended by causing death.
1: Why, I wondered, was Lawrence so anxious to prove his stepmother's death was an accident? But Powerstein made short work of his theory.
11: What Mr Cavendish suggests is utterly impossible. Any doctor would tell you that. The whole thing is absurd.
1: And then Mary Cavendish was called. She looked pale, but very self-assured.
6: I was woken by my alarm clock at a quarter to five, as usual, and as I was getting dressed, I heard something being knocked over.
1: Would that have been the table in Mrs. Inglethorpe's bedroom?
6: I believe so. I opened the door, and Dorcas came running down the corridor to wake my husband.
1: I really do not think we need trouble you further on this aspect, Mrs. Cavendish, since we know all we need to know what happened next. But I should be obliged, if you could tell us what you overheard of a particular quarrel on the day before. Quarrel? Yes, Mrs Cavendish. I understand from the deposition of the maid, Annie, that you were sitting on the bench just outside the long window of the boudoir. That is so. And the boudoir window was open, was it not? Yes. Then you cannot fail to hear the voices inside since they were raised in anger.
10: Will you repeat to us what you overheard of the quarrel?
6: I really do not remember hearing anything very much. I'm not in the habit of listening to private conversations.
1: Even so, you must have caught some word or phrase that made you realise it was
10: a private conversation.
6: I remember Mrs. Inglethorpe saying something about causing a scandal between husband and wife.
10: Which corresponds to what I understand Dorcas heard. But although you realised it was a private conversation, you did not go
1: away. I caught the momentary gleam of her tawny eyes. I felt certain that she would willingly have torn him into little pieces, but she replied quietly enough.
6: I was very comfortable where I was. I fixed my mind on my book.
1: The coroner did not seem very satisfied with her reply, but he let it go at that. But then came the real sensation of the day, the evidence of Mr Mace, the chemist. Tell me, have you lately sold strychnine to any unauthorised person? (coughs) Yes, sir. And when was this? On Monday the 16th. The day before
10: Mrs. Inglethorpe's death. And will you tell us to whom you sold it? To Mr. Inglethorpe. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. Are you quite sure of them?
5: (coughs) Quite sure.
10: Are you in the habit of selling strychnine indiscriminately over the counter? No, sir. But seeing as it was Mr. Inglethorpe at the hall, I thought there was no harm in it.
5: He said it was to poison a dog. Is it not customary for anyone purchasing poison to sign the book? Uh, Yes, sir. Mr. Inglethorpe did so. I have the book here. Mm. Mr. Inglethorpe, on Monday evening last,
1: did you purchase strychnine for the purpose of poisoning a dog? No, I did not. There is no dog at Stiles except for a sheepdog which is in perfect health. Do you deny that this is your signature in the chemist's poison book? This is not my handwriting. It is not even remotely like my signature. Let me show you. There. Do you see? It is totally different. Then what is your explanation for Mr. Mace's statement? Mr. Mace must have been mistaken. (laughs) Mr. Inglethorpe, would you mind telling us where you were on the evening of Monday, July the 16th?
12: I cannot remember. I have an idea. i was out walking.
1: In which direction? I cannot remember. Did you meet anyone on your walk? No. Am I to take it that you declined to say where you were when Mr. Mays positively recognised you entering
10: the chemist's shop?
1: If you like to take it that way... Yes.
10: Does this imbécile want to be arrested? I believe you
1: had a discussion with your wife on Tuesday afternoon. You have been misinformed. The whole story of the quarrel is absolutely untrue. I was absent from the house all afternoon. Have you anyone who can testify to that? You have my word. <laughs> there are two witnesses who will swear to having heard your disagreement with Mrs. Inglethorpe. Those witnesses were mistaken. Miss Inglethorpe, when your wife was on the point of death,
10: she cried out, Alfred, Alfred. Why should she do that? The room was dimly lit. My wife
1: caught sight of Dr. Bauerstein. He wears a beard and is much of my height and build. She obviously mistook him for me and cried out to him.
10: But it is an idea, that.
1: I believe, Miss Inglethorpe, that it was you who poured out the coffee that evening and took the cup to your wife? I poured it out, yes, but I did not take it to her. I was told that Dr. Bauerstein had arrived, and I put the coffee cup on the table in the hall while I went to talk to him. When I came back, the cup was gone.
10: Thank you, Mr. Inglethorpe. Do you see that man sitting near the door? The shop, F- face trap? Yes. That is Detective Inspector Chapp. Huh? He and his companion are both from Scotland Yard. Things are moving quickly, my friend.
1: And then came the verdict, though it was almost a foregone conclusion. Willful murder against some person
12: or persons unknown
3: nonsense!
15: We all know who the murderer is, and he's standing there! Well, if it isn't Monsieur Poirot, there's no mistaking you, is there? This is my colleague, Inspector Summerhays.
10: And this is my good friend, Captain Hissings. Pleased
15: to meet you, Captain. How do you do? How do you do, sir? You must have heard me speak of Monsieur Poirot Summerhaze. We worked together on the Abercrombie forgery case, and our friend here ran him to earth in Brussels. (laughs) Long before the war, that was. And do you remember the so called Baron Altera? He thumbed his nose at half the police in Europe, but thanks to Monsieur Poirot, we nailed him in Antwerp.
10: (laughs) I am sure there is no need to ask why you are here, gentlemen. No, there's not. Pretty clear case, I should say. Hmm. There I differ from you.
15: Oh, come off it, Monsieur. The whole thing's as clear as daylight. Hold your horses, Summer Hayes. If I'm not mistaken, you've got something up your sleeve, haven't you, Monsieur Poirot? Well,
10: let us say I am very anxious that Alfred Ingerthorpe should not be arrested. But it's as plain as the nose on your face. If you do arrest him, the case will be dismissed at once. Well, Monsieur Poirot, I'm prepared to take your word for it, but my superiors won't. Can't you give me a
15: bit more to go on? Mm,
10: it can be done. I would have preferred to work in the dark for a little longer, but uh, I can see that the word of a Belgian policeman whose day is past is not enough. Are you going at once to Stiles Court?
15: Just as soon as we've had a word with the coroner.
10: Then call for me at the cottage as soon as you have finished. We will go together. But I still don't understand. If Inglethorpe is innocent, how do you account for him buying the strychnine? Very simply, he did not buy it. But Mace recognized him. No, no. Mace saw a man with a black beard like Inglethorpe's and glasses like Inglethorpe's. He did not really know him. Why should he doubt that the man was not the genuine article? But if that's the case, why did he not say where he was at six o'clock on Monday? Can you not guess? No. Can you? Oh, yes. I have a little idea. Ah, but there is sharp. Let us go to Siles and hear what Alfred Inglethorpe has to say for himself when he is not taking the stand-in court. I have nothing to say. But you are in grave danger, Mr. Inglethorpe. You are accused of murdering your wife, and these gentlemen have come from Scotland Yard. Afternoon, Mr. Inglethorpe. Will you not say where you were at six o'clock on Monday? I will not. The accusation is monstrous. Mr. Inglethorpe, I must warn you A moment, I beg you, Inspector. If Mr. Inglethorpe will not tell you... Then I must speak for him. How can you speak? You do not know! The man who purchased strychnine at the chemist's shop cannot have been Mr. Inglethorpe because at six o'clock on that day he was escorting Mrs. Rakes back to her home at Abbey Farm. I can produce at least five witnesses who will swear they saw them together.
15: You really are the goods and no mistake. I'm much obliged to you, Monsieur Poirot.
13: But if that's the case, Mr. Inglethorpe, why on earth
14: couldn't you say this at the inquest?
15: Because a most malicious rumour had been spread about me.
1: And with my poor Emily not yet buried. Can you wonder I was anxious that no more lying
15: rumours were started? Between you and me, sir, I'd sooner have any amount of tales about me than be arrested for murder. And if you hadn't been for Monsieur Poirot here, you would have been as sure as eggs is eggs. So, perhaps we could now take a look at the scene of the crime.
10: Quick, Hastings, go upstairs to the other wing. Stand there, just this side of the base door. Right. Do not move until I come. And he followed
1: the others upstairs. I went and took up my position and stood there for the next 20 minutes. You have not left your post? I have been here all the time. What exactly
10: is this in aid of? Did you perhaps hear a loud thump? Nothing at all. Should I have done? I have been very clumsy. I knocked over a table in Mrs. Inglethorpe's room. I'm sure it's of no consequence. But I did remember something while I was standing
1: there like an idiot. I should have told you before, Dr. Bowerstein was here on Tuesday night.
10: Huh? He was here on the night of the murder? Yes, he took coffee with the rest of us. Oh, but that changes everything. We must take Mr. Cavendish's car and go down to Tadminster at once. So, now that Inglethorpe's out of the running, where do we go from here? Is there no one you yourself suspect, mon ami? Well, you'll probably think this far-fetched, but I can't help
1: worrying about Evelyn Howard's fanatical hatred of Inglethorpe. You don't think she could have tried to poison him and that Mrs. Inglethorpe somehow got hold of it by mistake?
10: But Miss Howard had been away from Stiles for more than a week. It is hardly a very plausible theory. Uh, so I suppose that leaves us with John and Lawrence but I can hardly believe You did not think there was something rather strange about Lawrence's theory concerning his mother's tonic? It was quite a reasonable suggestion for a layman. But Lawrence Cavendish is not a layman. He is trained as a doctor. Why should he be the only one to suggest that his mother died of natural causes? Mm, It is a bit odd, I admit. And Mary Cavendish was certainly not telling all that she knew about the conversation she overheard. Is she trying to protect someone? Or is she perhaps trying to protect herself? Ah, but here we are. There is something I must leave with the analytical chemist. What? A sample of the cocoa from the saucepan in Mrs. Inglethorpe's room. But Dr. Barstein has already had it, tested. I know that, mon ami, but I have a fancy to have it analysed again. And by the way, when you are next alone with Lawrence Cavendish, say to him... I have a message from Hercule Poirot. Find the extra coffee cup and you can rest in peace.
1: Needless to say, when I mentioned this to Lawrence, he hadn't the foggiest idea what I was talking about. The funeral of Mrs. Inglethorpe took place the following day. And to the great relief of all of us, her husband moved to the Stylites' arms. Excuse me, Captain Hastings.
9: Yes, Dorcas. Will you be seeing the Belgian gentleman today? Yes, as a matter of fact, I'm expecting him here any minute. He was particularly inquiring about a green dress. Hmm. He seemed to think it was important. You mean you found it? Well, no, sir, but I have just remembered the young gentleman used to have a dressing-up box and all kinds of old cast-offs found their way into it. It occurred to me there might be a green dress in there. Hmm. It, it, it's up in the front attic.
10: A crimson kimono, a cardboard breastplate, a very threadbare shooting jacket. What, what about this scarf? Could it be what we're looking for? No, 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 no. Quite the wrong shade. We are not looking for emerald green. Scabbard, a bead necklace, a blue cloak. Oh, 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 look at this, my friend. Black beard. And observe, Hastings. It has been trimmed to make it look like the beard worn by Inglothorpe. A good place to hide it. Apart from Dorcas, the only people who appear to have known about the dressing-up box are John and Lawrence. And the beard is new. Everything else in the chest has been used over and over again, but this was obviously bought quite recently. I need someone to find out how it came here. You could always ask John. No, 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 not John. Miss Howard
1: might know, or she could certainly find out.
10: An excellent idea. But I am in her black books because I prevented Inglethorpe being arrested. Can she be persuaded, I wonder?
4: Well, Monsieur Poirot, what do you want? Out with it. I'm busy.
10: Do you remember, mademoiselle, I once asked you to help me? Yes, I do. And I told you I'd help you with pleasure to hang Inglethorpe. Miss Howard... My friend Hastings told me of something you said that impressed me very much. Well, what was that? That if somebody close to you had been murdered, you would instantly know who had committed the crime.
4: And I suppose you think that's nonsense. Not in the least. And yet you don't believe me when I tell you it was Inglethorpe that
10: killed poor Emily. No, because you really do not believe that he did it. You are trying to shut out the name of the person your instinct tells you is the murderer. No,
4: that's not true.
10: I know you have too high a regard for justice to deceive yourself. Help me to unmask the real killer of your beloved Emily.
4: Yes, you are right. Nothing must be allowed to stand in the way of justice. Tell me what you want me to do.
1: Ah, Miss Murdoch, the very person I wanted to talk to. Monsieur Poirot wants to know if he can come and have a look round your dispensary.
8: Of course he can. Hmm. But tell him I'm not there on Wednesdays. <laughs> He's such a funny little man. Hmm. The other day he made me take the brooch out of my tie and put it straight.
1: Yes, that kind of thing is rather an obsession with him.
8: Captain Hastings, you are always so kind and know such a lot. Oh. I want to ask your advice. Go ahead. You see, Aunt Emily always told me I should be provided for. I suppose she forgot, or didn't think she would die so soon. But the long and short of it is, I'm not provided for. Do you think I ought to go away from here at once and stop living at
1: Stiles? Oh, good heavens, no. I'm sure they don't want to get rid of you. Mrs Cavendish
8: does. She hates me. And so does he.
1: Oh, I'm quite sure you're wrong about Mary. And as for John... Oh, I didn't
8: mean John... I meant Lawrence. Not, of course, that I care whether he hates me or not. But he's been behaving so strangely lately and and tries to avoid speaking to me. It's rather horrid when no one loves you. Um. I I don't know what to do.
1: I I know what you should do, Cynthia. Marry me.
9: Don't be silly.
1: I'm not being silly. I'm asking you to do me the honour of becoming my wife, Miss Murdoch.
8: (laughs) You funny dear. It's perfectly sweet of you, but you know you don't really want to.
1: Yes, I do. And there's nothing to laugh at. I don't see anything funny about a proposal.
8: No, indeed. But next time, somebody might accept you. Good morning, Captain Hastings. Mm. And thank you. You've cheered me up very much.
1: Thinking over our little interview, it all struck me as being profoundly unsatisfactory. After lunch, I went for a stroll through the woods and sat down under an old beech tree trying to work out the whole mystery. In a couple of minutes, I was sound asleep.
6: It's no concern of yours anyway.
1: John and Mary Cavendish were standing only a few feet away totally unaware that I was there.
3: I won't have it, Mary. Do you understand?
6: You won't have it? What right do you think you have to criticise my conduct? It's
3: the talk of the village. My mother was buried only yesterday and you spent all your time gadding about with that fellow.
6: Oh, well, if it's only village gossip you're worrying about. You intend to go on seeing Bowerstein? If I choose. I deny your right to criticise my actions. Do you think I don't know what you're up
3: to? What do you mean?
6: You know very well what I mean.
3: Mary, are you in love with this Bauerstein fellow?
6: Perhaps. But if I am, it is no concern of yours.
3: I
1: stood there, not daring to make a move until Mary had gone. And then I stepped ostentatiously forward. John took it for granted that I'd only just come on the scene.
3: Oh, hello, Hastings. Have you been seeing the little fellow back to his cottage? Is he getting any further, do you think? Well, if he is, he's keeping it to himself. Well, is he really any good, do you think? He was considered one of the finest detectives of his day. Oh, it's all such a nightmare. Scotland Yard men in and out of the house all the time. They were there again this morning. Screaming headlines in every paper in the country. There was a whole crowd of journalists outside the lodge this morning. It's like being in an exhibit in the Chamber of Horrors. I don't know whether I shall ever be able to hold my head up again. It'll pass. These things always do. But who could have done it? It's horrible to think that now Inglethorpe's out of it, it can only be one of us. But how could it be? Well, that's just it. There isn't anyone. You don't think... Yes?
1: You don't think it could be Bowerstein? But what possible interest could he have in Mother's death? I've no idea, but Poirot got very excited when he heard Bowerstein had been at Stiles when the coffee was poured out. And then again, it might have been the cocoa. I know for a fact that Poirot is not at all happy about the analysis Bowerstein had carried out. But Coco couldn't have concealed the taste of strychnine. We've only got Bowerstein's word for that. And after all, he knows more about poisons than anyone else in the country.
3: He could have used something else. Even so, I'm damned if I can see what his motive could have been. And in any case, he would have needed an accomplice.
1: John went off back towards the house. And then a terrible thought struck me. Could Bowerstein's accomplice have been Mary? Hadn't Mrs. Inglethorpe found out that she was having an affair with Bowerstein and threatened to tell John all about it? Was that why she'd been killed? Or had Mary cold-bloodedly used Bowerstein to get rid of a woman who was in her
6: way? Two married women shouldn't have to share the same house.
1: I must confess the whole idea made me feel rather sick. And I remembered what Mary had said on the very first afternoon we met.
6: Not in a case of poisoning. Isn't that supposed to be the woman's weapon?
1: I was in a very gloomy state of mind all the way back to Stiles. As I reached the garden, Evie came rushing towards me. Captain! Captain! Have you heard the news? What news, Evie? About Barstein. What, what's happened to him? He's been arrested!
4: <laughs> if you ask me, they've got the wrong black beard!
10: It does not surprise me. After all, we are only four miles from the coast. What has that got to do with it? Well, surely it
1: is obvious, mon ami. No doubt I'm very dense, but I cannot see what
10: the proximity of the coast has to do with the murder of Mrs. Inglethorpe. Unless the good Inspector Japp has taken leave of his senses, the matter has nothing to do with Mrs. Inglethorpe. Then why has Bauerstein been arrested? For espionage, mon ami. What else? I mean, he's a German spy. Did you not suspect it? The idea never entered my head. It did not strike you as peculiar that a famous London doctor should bury himself in a little village like this, and should be in the habit of walking about at all hours of the night.
1: You mean that's how he came to fall in the pond on the night of the
10: murder? It is very likely, mon ami, and she is, of course, a German by birth. A oh, blackguard? No, 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 not at all. He is, on the contrary, a patriot. And despite the fact that Belgium has been devastated by his fellow countrymen, I must confess, I rather admire his courage. This is the man with whom Mary Cavendish has been wandering about all over the place? Yes. I fancy he found her very useful. So long as everyone was gossiping about the pair of them, no one paid much attention to what Vastine was really doing. Then, do you think he never really cared for her? No, oh, that I cannot say, but I will tell you one thing. What's that? I do not believe Mrs. Cavendish cares or has ever cared one jot about Dr. Barstine.
1: Do you really think that?
10: I'm quite sure of it. Hmm. And I will tell you why. Yes? Because she cares for someone else. What did
1: he mean? I'm not a vain man where women are concerned, but in spite of myself, an
10: agreeable warmth spread over me. We must waste no more time and hurry on to the house. I have had a message from Miss Howard. She has discovered something.
4: Here you are, Monsieur Poirot. Is this what you were looking for?
10: I believe it is. Where did you find it, Mademoiselle?
4: On top of a wardrobe. But I've no time to stand here chatting. Meeting of the Charities Committee at the Village Hall and Lady Tadminsters in the chair. Wouldn't do to keep her waiting.
1: She's brown paper. Not very much to get excited about. Ah,
10: but do you not see the label? Um, Mrs. Parkson, the actual costume is? Is that what the beard came in? So it would seem. And it is addressed to um, Is it J Cavendish or is it an L? Well, certainly not a J. What was it doing on top of a wardrobe?
15: Ah, oh, Monsieur Poirot. Nobody told me you were in the house. Good morning, Captain Hastings. Mm-hmm. Good morning, Inspector. What's that you got there? Oh, theatrical costumiers, eh?
10: Where did this come from?
1: Miss Howard found it on top of a wardrobe.
10: Hmm. Have you any objection to my hanging on to this, Monsieur Poirot? None at all, Inspector. It has told me all I wish to know.
15: How is the investigation progressing? Oh, we've turned up a thing or two. As a matter of fact, we've come across another will? A will? dated before Mrs. Inglethorpe's marriage and leaving her entire fortune to Mr. Inglethorpe. But
10: why did her solicitor not know of
15: this? That's the funny thing about it. It was written on one of those printed will forms. And where did you find it, Inspector? In the desk in the boudoir. But I understood that Mr. Wells had gone through all Mrs. Inglethorpe's papers very carefully. I must have missed it. We found it stuffed into one of the drawers at the back. But I'd better be off, if you'll excuse me. Things are beginning to warm up. Goodbye, Mr. Poirot.
10: Cabernet. Goodbye, Inspector. Ah, the poor chap. He has no method. Nevertheless, it is strange about the will. Ah, but here is the good talker. A little word with you, Mademoiselle, if I may. Yes, Mr. Poirot. Tell me, on the day before the tragedy, did anything go wrong with Mrs. Ingethorpe's bell? Oh, as a matter of fact, it did. Though I don't know how you came to hear of it. A
9: mouse or some such must have nibbled the wire through. The man came and put it right on Tuesday.
10: Thank you, mademoiselle. That is all I wanted to know.
9: Oh, thank you, Mr. Poirot.
10: One should never ask for outside proof. But the flesh is weak, and it is good to know one is on the right track. I am like a giant refreshed A very small giant.
6: Your little friend seems very pleased with himself. What's it all about? I really haven't
1: the faintest idea.
6: Is he quite mad? Uh, I
1: believe there's method in his madness.
6: Captain Hastings, I need to talk to you. Will you come into the garden?
1: Oh, of course. I'd be only too
6: happy. Tell me, do you think my husband and I are happy together?
1: Um i don't think it's any of my business to have an opinion
6: well whether it's your business or not i will tell you that we are not happy you don't know anything about me do you well no not not really my father was english but my mother was russian ah
1: now i understand
6: what do you understand Uh, well there's
1: a hint of something um rather different about you
6: my mother was very beautiful i believe But she died when I was a little child. I was told she'd taken an overdose of sleeping pills by accident. My father was in the consular service. I went all over the world with him. It was a splendid life and I loved it. I can understand that. And then my father died. He left me badly off and I had to go and live with some old aunts in Yorkshire. The deadly monotony of life with them was getting too much for me and then I met John. I wasn't in the least in love with him. I married him to get away from the terrible boredom of my existence. I see. Don't misunderstand me. I was quite honest with him. I told him that I liked him very much and that I hoped to come to like him more. I'm sure he cared for me at first, but we drifted apart. It is not a pleasant thing for me to admit, but he tired of me very soon. Oh, but surely... Not that it matters now. I believe we may have come to the parting of the ways. I'm not going to remain at Stiles.
1: Uh, and John?
6: I've no idea what he intends to do. You're going to leave him? I want to be free, Captain Hastings. You can have no idea what a prison this place has been to me. I hope you will do
11: anything
1: rash. <laughs> rash? Um, you know that Dr. Bowerstein has been arrested...
6: My husband was so kind as to break the news to me this morning.
1: So, what do you think?
6: What should I think? Mm. Apparently he's a German spy or so, one of the gardeners told John. But I must go back to the house now. Thank you for listening to me so patiently.
1: Just before tea time, I went to look for Poirot and was told that he'd gone to Cynthia Murdoch's dispensary. But he knew very well that Wednesday was her day off. What on earth was happening to the man?
5: I say, Hastings, Uh if you happen to see your Belgian friend... Yes, Lawrence? Will you tell him I think I've found the extra coffee cup?
1: I must admit I've forgotten all about it. By the end of the afternoon, Poirot had returned.
10: I found him sitting by the table in his cottage, his head
1: buried in his hands.
10: Ah, to speak or not to speak, that is the question... As your great poet puts it. What on earth are you talking about? The most serious of all things hangs in the balance. And what is that? A woman's happiness. The moment has come, and I do not know what to do. I see. By the way, Lawrence asked me to tell you.
1: He thinks he's found the extra coffee cup.
10: Ah, that is good. He has more intelligence than would appear, this long-faced Monsieur Laurence. <laughs> now... There is something on which I need your opinion. Are you a good judge of finger marks? Well, I know that none are ever alike. Then take a look at these. I have numbered the photographs, one, two, and three. Will you describe them to me? Uh, Number one, I would guess, is a
1: man's fingerprint, Mm -hmm. that of the index finger. Number two is a lady's, quite different in every way. Number three. It's all rather confused. But there are two very distinct prints which appear to be the same as the man's finger in number one.
10: You are sure of that? As sure as I can be. Good. Now, number one is the fingerprint of Laurence Cavendish. Hmm. Number two, that of Mademoiselle Cynthia. And number three is the highly magnified surface of a small bottle in the poison cupboard of the dispensary at Tadminster.
1: You mean you deliberately went there when you knew Cynthia Murdoch wouldn't be around. But Lawrence was never near the poison cupboard on the day we were there. We stayed together all the time.
10: Are you certain of that?
1: No, no. I remember now. Cynthia and I were having tea out on the balcony, and she suddenly realised Lawrence wasn't with us and called out to him to join us. But it could only have been for a moment.
10: Long enough? Long enough for what? Long enough for a man who had once studied medicine to gratify a very natural interest. What was in that particular bottle? hydrochloride of strychnine good lord there is far too much strychnine in this case strychnine in mrs inglethorpe's tonic strychnine sold across the counter to someone wearing a false beard and now we have a strychnine bottle handled by Lawrence cavendish it is all very confusing and as you know i do not like confusion Entree.
6: You will forgive my intruding, but they told me that you were here with Monsieur Poirot, Captain Hastings, and I thought I would call for you.
10: Oh, madame, I hoped you had called to honour me with a visit.
6: I would be only too happy to come whenever you wish.
10: Mm. If you should ever need a father confessor, madame, remember that Papa Poirot is always at your service.
6: I won't forget, Monsieur Poirot... Will you walk back with us to Stiles?
10: I should be enchanted, madame. The weather had broken, and
1: it felt more like autumn than early summer. Mary shivered and buttoned her coat close. As we went through the great door of Stiles, we came upon Dorcas. She was trembling and very pale.
9: They've arrested him, ma'am. They've arrested Mr Cavendish. They've arrested Lawrence? No, no, sir, not Master Lawrence. Master John. John!
1: Oh, oh. I just can't believe it. After what you said about the strychnine bottle, I was certain it must be Lawrence.
10: But John, my old friend John... Every murderer is probably someone's old friend. I must say, you might have given me a clue. Perhaps I did not do so simply because he was your old friend. Did you never suspect him at all? Never. Did you not realize that if it was not her husband whom Mrs. Inglethorpe was quarreling with that afternoon, it must have been either Lawrence or John?
1: And it was John.
10: Is that what you're saying? Mm. Why else should Mary Cavendish have pretended not to remember the conversation at the inquest? Do you think they'll find him guilty? On the contrary, I think there is a chance he may be acquitted. But Mm. I cannot be certain. It is one thing to know that a man is guilty, but it is quite another matter to prove him so. I lack the last link in the chain, and I do not know where to look for it. Did that mean Poirot believed John to be guilty or not? It was
1: two months before John was committed for trial at the Old Bailey, and during those weeks all my admiration and sympathy went out to Mary Cavendish. All thoughts of leaving John had been cast aside. She was determined to fight for him tooth and nail.
10: Yes, she is one of those women in whom adversity brings out the best. Her jealousy and her pride... Her jealousy? Have you not realised that she is a passionately jealous woman? But now she thinks only of her husband and of the terrible fate that is hanging over him. Of course, he wouldn't tell me why
1: she was jealous. It was another of those little mysteries Poirot persisted in keeping to himself. By the time the case came into court, I had been given a job at the War Office. Mary had taken a house in Kensington and invited Poirot and myself to stay with her. On September 15th, John appeared in the dock to answer the charge of the willful murder of Emily Inglethorpe. Mr Phillips
14: opened for the crime. Rarely in the course of my career have I been confronted with a more ruthless or cold-blooded crime. The callous and deliberate poisoning, gentlemen of the jury, of a fond and trusting woman by a stepson to whom she had been more than a mother who had supported him ever since his boyhood. A kind and generous benefactress to both the prisoner and his wife. Mr Phillips, a KC
1: of the old school, began to build up a formidable and rather alarming case for the Crown.
14: I shall call witnesses to show that the prisoner, a profligate and spendthrift, had been at the end of his financial tether and, furthermore, had been carrying on an intrigue with the wife of a neighbouring farmer, a certain Mrs Ricks. No wonder poor Mary was so wretchedly unhappy. This having come to Mrs Inglethorpe's ears, she confronted the prisoner on the afternoon before her death and a bitter quarrel ensued part of which was most fortunately overheard. On the day previous to this, the prisoner had purchased strychnine at the village chemists, wearing a disguise by which he hoped to throw suspicion upon another. The man he believed stood between himself and his stepmother's fortune, her husband, Alfred Inglethorpe. Fortunately, Mr. Inglethorpe, ...had an unimpeachable alibi.
1: Provided by Mrs. Rakes, who had evidently been rather free with her favours.
14: On the afternoon of July the 17th, immediately after the quarrel with her stepson, Mrs. Inglethorpe made a new will. A fragment of this was found in the ashes of a bedroom fire the following morning, but it was undoubtedly drawn up in favour of her husband. This will had been almost certainly destroyed by the prisoner. But little did he know that the deceased had already drawn up a will in favour of her husband at the time of her engagement, (coughs) uh, which she had... Evidently uh, forgotten
1: He got himself into rather a tangle over the various wills, and it was with considerable relief that he came to the end of his exposition and called to the stand his first witness, Inspector Japp.
15: Acting on information received, I searched the prisoner's room during his temporary absence from the house. In his chest of drawers, hidden under a pile of underwear, we found first a pair of gold-rimmed pince-nez, similar to those worn by Mr. Inglethorpe, and secondly, this file. And
14: you will see, gentlemen of the jury, that the file is labelled Strychnine Hydrochloride Poison. And I believe you came across another piece of vital evidence, Inspector.
15: A piece of blotting paper in Mrs. Inglethorpe's chequebook. On being reversed in a mirror, one could discern the words Everything of which I die possessed, I leave
14: to my beloved husband. Alfred Inger, Which proves beyond question that the destroyed will had been in favour of the deceased's husband.
1: The counsel for the defence, Sir Ernest Heavyweather, was renowned for his bullying tactics, but it took him quite an effort to make any impression on the imperturbable Jap.
12: Tell me, Inspector, what day did you say it was that you searched the defendant's room?
15: Tuesday, the 24th of July.
12: Exactly a week after the tragedy. And you say that you found the pants-nay and the phial of strychnine in the chest of drawers. Was the drawer unlocked? Yes, it was. Does it not strike you as unlikely that a man who is supposed to have committed murder should keep such incriminating pieces of evidence in an unlocked drawer where anyone could find them?
15: It was probably in a hurry.
12: But it was a whole week after the crime... He would have had ample time to take them out of the house and destroy them. Perhaps. There is no perhaps about it. Would he or would he not have had time to take them out of the house and destroy them? Yes. Now, you say you
15: found these
12: things underneath a pile of underwear.
15: That is correct.
12: Heavy or light?
15: Heavy or light what?
12: Underclothing
15: heavy-ish.
12: Winter underclothing. Obviously, the defendant would not be likely to go to that drawer. Perhaps not. Kindly answer my question. Would the defendant, in the hottest week of an exceptionally hot summer, be likely to go to a drawer containing winter underclothing, yes or no? No. In that case, Is it not possible, Inspector, that the articles in question might have been put there by a third person and that the defendant was totally unaware of their existence?
15: I should not think it likely.
12: But it is possible. Yes.
15: That is all.
1: There followed what seemed to be an interminable wrangle over the parcel containing the black beard sent by the theatrical costumiers.
14: I believe, Miss Howard, that it was you who found this sheet of brown paper?
1: Yes, I did.
14: And where did you discover it?
4: On top of a wardrobe.
14: On top of the prisoner's
4: wardrobe? I believe so.
14: Did you not find it yourself? Yes. Then you must know where you found it.
4: Yes, it was on top of Mr Cavendish's wardrobe.
1: The prosecution then further established that an assistant at the costumiers had sent a black beard to a Mr. L. Cavendish on receipt of his letter and a postal order. Sir Ernest made short work of him.
12: And where was the letter sent from? From Stiles Court. The same address to which you sent the parcel? Yes. How do you know? I'm sorry, I don't understand. How do you know that the letter came to you from Stiles Court? Did you notice the postmark? No, but... Did you keep the envelope? No, I... So you did not notice the postmark nor retain any proof of it. And yet you affirm so confidently that it came from Stiles. It might, in fact, have been any postmark. I suppose it might. In fact, the letter might have been posted from anywhere. From Wales, for instance...
1: The significance of that last question only became apparent when Lawrence Cavendish took the stand, for at the date when the beard had been ordered, he had in fact been in Wales. Do I understand
12: that you deny having sent an order for a black beard on the 25th of June? I do. Then how do you account for the fact that it was ordered in your name and sent in your name to Stiles?
5: I cannot account for it.
12: In the event of anything happening to your brother John, Mr. Cavendish, who will inherit Stiles Court? Answer my question, if you please.
5: I suppose I should.
12: What do you mean, you suppose? Your brother has no children. You would inherit, wouldn't you? Yes. That's better. Now... On Tuesday, the 17th of July, you went, I believe, to visit the dispensary at the Red Cross Hospital in Tadminster. Yes. Did you, while you happened to be alone there for a few seconds, unlock the poison cupboard and examine some of the bottles?
5: I I may have done so. I
12: put it to you that you did? Yes. Did you examine one bottle in particular?
5: No, I, I do not think so.
12: Be careful, Mr Cavendish. I am referring to a phial of hydrochloride of strychnine.
5: No, I am sure I didn't.
12: Then how do you account for the fact that you left the unmistakable imprint of your fingers on it?
5: Uh, I suppose I must have taken up the bottle.
12: I suppose so, too. Did you abstract any of the contents of the bottle? Certainly not. Then why did you take it up?
5: I... I once studied as a doctor. Such things naturally interest me.
12: So, poisons naturally interest you, do they, Mr Cavendish? But you waited until you were alone before gratifying this interest of yours? Well, I... I have nothing further to ask you, Mr Cavendish.
10: He is a clever man, Sir Ernest.
6: Do you think he really believes Lawrence is guilty?
10: I do not think he believes anything. What he is trying to do is to create such confusion in the minds of the jury that they cannot be certain which of the brothers did it. He is trying to make out that there is as much evidence against Lawrence as there is against John. And I think he may well succeed. But on the following
1: day, when John took the stand, things began to go badly against him. Particularly when he was asked why he did not come forward at the inquest to explain that it was he and not Alfred Inglethorpe who had been overheard quarrelling with his stepmother.
3: It never occurred to me that anyone could have mistaken my voice for that of Mr Inglethorpe. I was told there had been a quarrel between him and my mother And I simply did not think this had any connection with my own disagreement with her.
14: Not even when the housekeeper, Dorcas, repeated certain fragments of the conversation. Fragments which you must certainly have recognised.
3: I did not recognise them. You must have a curiously selective memory, Mr Cavendish. The fact is that we were both angry and said more than we meant. I paid very little attention to my mother's actual words.
1: Mr Phillips's incredulous sniff was a triumph of forensic art. But then he drew John onto far more dangerous ground. The question of his alibi for the time when the person disguised as Inglethorpe had purchased strychnine from the chemist's shop.
14: Your explanation is that you had been summoned to a place called Marston's Spinney by an anonymous letter threatening blackmail.
2: That is correct.
14: And is this the letter in question? Yes, that is the letter. You have produced this very opportunely, Mr. Cavendish. Tell me, is there nothing familiar about the handwriting?
3: Not that I know of.
14: Do you not see it bears a remarkable resemblance to your own handwriting, ineptly this kind? No, I do not think so. I put it to you that this is your own handwriting. I deny that absolutely. Is it not a fact that at the time you claim to have been at this solitary and unfrequented spot... You were, in fact, in the chemist's shop at Stiles St. Mary, disguised as Alfred Inglethorpe, and that you purchased strychnine, signing the register in his name? That is utterly false. Then I will leave the remarkable similarity between this letter, the forged signature in the chemist's poison book, and this specimen of your own handwriting to the consideration of the jury.
1: The case was adjourned until the following Monday. When they got back to the house, Poirot waved aside Mary's offer of a cup of tea and went straight upstairs. After a while I followed him, and to my utter amazement found him building a house of cards.
10: No Hastings, I am not yet in my second childhood. Sherlock Holmes had his violin, I have my house of cards. It requires precision of the fingers. And with precision of the fingers comes precision of the brain. And never have I needed it more than now. You've certainly got a remarkably steady hand. It's almost as if you were performing a conjuring trick. I need a steady hand, mon ami. The slightest tremble would bring the whole house tumbling down. I've only seen your hand shake once. Hmm. On an occasion when I was enraged, perhaps? You certainly were. It
1: was when you found that the dispatch box in Mrs. Inglefort's room had been forced open. You stood by the mantelpiece, fiddling with the spill vases, and your hand was shaking like a leaf. Oh,
10: mon dieu! What's the matter? It is that I have an idea. A stupendous idea! And you, my friend, have given it to me. Steady on. Where can I find a garage? Why do you want a garage? I must return to Stiles at once.
6: I've had a telegram from Monsieur Poirot. (laughs) He says we must all return immediately to Stiles. Everyone who was in the house at the time of the murder must be present. What on earth for? He wants to hold a little reunion, as he puts it. Even Inspector Japp has been invited.
1: Ahs not to reason why, I suppose. There's no point in trying to argue with him when he's like this, and even less point in asking him what it's all about.
10: Now, Miss Howard, if you will kindly sit here.
4: Wherever you like. What's all this in aid of?
10: All will be revealed in good time. And uh, you next to her, Mademoiselle Cynthia?
8: Certainly, Monsieur Poirot this is all rather exciting and the
10: good doctors will sit here and uh, annie will you please sit next to her and if you would be so good as to sit here madame cavendish and you next to her monsieur laurence
15: whatever you wish i'll sit over by the window if it's all the same with you
10: i don't want to cramp your style but you must all be patient for a little while longer we must delay the proceedings Until Monsieur Inglethorpe arrives.
4: If that man comes into this room, I leave it.
10: Ah, but, mademoiselle, it is most important that you remain here. You wish to see your dear friend, Madame Emily, revenge, do you not?
1: Well, if you put it like
4: that.
10: A few minutes later, Alfred Inglethorpe
1: arrived.
12: I understand you've organised a little get-together, monsieur.
1: Poirot ushered him to his seat and then turned to his little audience with the complacent air of a
10: popular lecturer. Madame, Monsieur, as I am sure you all know, I was called in to investigate this case by Mr. John Cavendish. There were two questions to be resolved. How did Mrs. Inglethorpe die, and why? There's
4: no mystery about that. She was poisoned by her husband for her money.
10: Monsieur Poirot, we know that you have a great reputation in Belgium as a detective,
1: But we have been at the Old Bailey for a week, being questioned and cross-questioned. Why
10: do we have to go through it all again? Because, Mr. Ingerthorpe, we still have to arrive at the truth. Now, let us go back to the beginning. If we must... My first action on coming to Stiles was to examine the bedroom of the deceased. I found first a fragment of green material... Secondly, a stain on the carpet near the window, and thirdly, an empty box which had contained bromide powders. (laughs) To take the fragment of green material first, I found it caught in the bolt of the door communicating between the room and the adjoining one occupied by Mademoiselle Cynthia. It was a piece torn from a land worker's green armlet. Ah, oh,
4: It must have been yours, Mary. You are the only one on the land.
10: And it could mean only that Mrs. Cavendish had entered Mrs. Inglethorpe's bedroom through the room of Mademoiselle Cynthia.
5: But the door was always kept bolted on the inside. It
10: would have been easy enough for Mrs. Cavendish to unbolt it earlier and then to slide the bolt back in the confusion around Mrs. Inglethorpe's deathbed. Now, At the inquest, Mrs. Cavendish, you declared, did you not, that you had heard from your room in the left wing the fall of the table by Mrs. Inglethorpe's bed.
6: Yes, I did.
10: I took the opportunity of testing that statement by stationing my friend Hastings outside the door of your room while I was showing Inspector Japp the scene of the crime. And you
15: proceeded to knock over a table by the bed. A clumsy accident, you said at the time.
10: So
1: that's what it was about. And, of course, I didn't hear a thing.
10: This confirmed my suspicion that Mrs Cavendish was not in her bedroom at the time of the tragedy, but was actually in Mrs Inglethorpe's room.
1: I looked at Mary. Never had I seen her so proudly beautiful. It was inconceivable that she could have murdered Mrs Inglethorpe. And then I remembered once again the gleam in her wonderful, tawny eyes when she had said that poison was a woman's weapon.
10: So, let us assume that Mrs Cavendish is in her mother-in-law's room under the impression that she is sleeping peacefully. She is searching for something. Suddenly, Mrs Inglethorpe wakes and is seized by an alarming paroxysm. She flings out her arm, overturning the bedside table, and then pulls desperately at the bell. Thoroughly alarmed, Mrs. Cavendish drops her candle and the grease spills on through the carpet. She picks it up and retreats back to the room of Mademoiselle Cynthia, closing the door behind her.
4: You mean she didn't lift a finger to help poor Emily?
10: Patience, Mademoiselle. Mrs. Cavendish hurries out into the passage, but already the footsteps of the servants are echoing along the gallery. Quickly, she goes back into the young girl's room and starts to shake her awake while the servants are battering on Mrs. Inglethorpe's door. When Mr. Lawrence discovers her there, she joins the others, and it occurs to no one that she has not arrived with the rest of the family. Am I right, Madame?
6: Yes, Monsieur Poirot, you are quite right. You must understand that if I thought it would do my husband any good to reveal these facts, I would have done so.
1: It showed a callous disregard for my poor wife's
10: suffering.
6: But what I don't understand is why I
8: didn't wake up while all this was going on.
10: Because you had been drugged, mademoiselle. Drugged? And with this in mind, I examined all the coffee cups from which everyone had drunk that evening, remembering that it was Mrs. Cavendish who had given you your coffee. I took a sample from each cup, but... I had made a serious miscalculation. You hadn't
1: realized that Dr. Baustein was there that evening, so there were seven cups instead of six. So the missing cup
10: could only be synthesis.
1: Oh,
8: I know, because I'm the only one who doesn't take sugar.
10: But then, my attention was caught by something you said, Annie. Uh, that there was a substance that looked like salt on Mrs. Inglethorpe's cocoa tray. Accordingly, I sent a sample of the cocoa to be analyzed dr
8: barstein had already done that
10: hadn't he Uh aha but he had asked the analyst to look for traces of strychnine i wanted to find out whether it contained a narcotic
6: and of course it did
10: you had administered a safe but effective narcotic both to mademoiselle cynthia's coffee and to mrs Inglethorpe's cocoa
6: you can imagine my feelings when the poor soul died in agony and everyone said she'd been poisoned It was the most awful hour of my life, and I shall never forget it. Now I understand why you offered your services as a father-confessor, Monsieur Poirot. I should have told you everything.
10: So now we are able to explain why the symptoms of strychnine poisoning took so long to make their appearance.
5: You mean that the drugged cocoa taken on top of the poisoned coffee would have delayed its effect?
10: Exactly, Monsieur Laurence. But we come now to a little difficulty. Mrs. Inglethorpe never drank her cup of coffee. (laughs) Do you remember the stain on the carpet of Mrs. Inglethorpe's room? It was still damp and smelled strongly of coffee. I realized what must have happened when I put my little case on the table near the window and it instantly tipped up. The same thing must have happened when Mrs. Inglethorpe put her coffee down on it. And so, she heated up her cocoa instead. So she never drank any coffee at all? No. And yet the strychnine must have been administered between seven and nine that evening. So, how was it done? <laughs> Through a substance so suitable for disguising its taste that it is extraordinary that no one thought of it. Her mitten.
6: You mean the murderer introduced the strychnine into her tonic?
10: No, oh, no. There was no need for that.
5: Her tonic already contained strychnine. I pointed that out at the inquest.
10: And it was perfectly harmless. But when a bromide is introduced into the mixture, the strychnine will be precipitated and collect at the bottom of the bottle. And the last dose will contain all of it and prove fatal.
8: So those bromide powders I made up
10: for... ...were added to her medicine. But you were not to know that they were to be used in that way.
8: No. I had no idea they could have that effect.
10: And the person who habitually poured out Mrs. Inglethorpe's medicine... ...was always careful not to shake the bottle... ...so as not to disturb the deadly sediment at the bottom.
15: Quite ingenious, really, when you think about it. But please go on, Monsieur
10: Poirot. Throughout the case, there have been indications that the tragedy was intended to take place on the Monday evening. Mrs. Inglethorpe's bell wire had been severed. Mademoiselle Cynthia was spending the night with friends.
8: So she would have been quite alone in her room in the right wing, completely cut off from everyone. She would have died long before medical help
1: could have reached her. And there would have been no one to observe the unmistakable effects of the strychnine poisoning.
10: Exactly. But on that Monday night, in her hurry to be on time for the concert, Mrs. Inglethorpe forgot to take her medicine.
9: Oh, She didn't forget it, sir. I told her she ought to take it, but she said it would do her no harm to go without it for once.
10: And alas, she was right. For by not taking that last fatal dose until the following evening... She prolonged her life for another 24 hours and it is to the events of those 24 hours that I shall now turn. Is this
1: really necessary? None of it is getting us anywhere.
10: It is necessary, Mr. Ingerthorpe, and as you will see, it is getting us somewhere. Let us now consider the matter of the will was it the will you were looking for in emily's room mary did you destroy it
6: no i wasn't looking for the will lawrence and the only person who could have destroyed it was mrs inglethorpe herself that's ridiculous i thought she was supposed to have made it on the afternoon before
4: her death you can't tell me she destroyed it on the same day
10: nevertheless mademoiselle that is what happened how else can you account for the fact that on one of the hottest days of the year mrs inglethorpe ordered a fire to be lit in her room
15: (gasps) Sounds out like a sore
10: thumb, really. Mrs. Inglethorpe would have ordered a fire only because she wanted to destroy something so that no one would ever see it and could think of no other way. In fact, Hastings and I found a charred fragment of it in the ashes of her fireplace.
5: But why should she destroy a will she'd only just made?
10: Uh, that is what I asked myself. I thought at first it was the consequence of the quarrel she had had earlier that afternoon, but now I realise I was wrong. Can you remind us, Dorcas, of what you overheard your mistress say?
9: She said, you need not think that any fear of publicity, of scandal between husband and wife, will deter me.
10: Those words were addressed not to Mr. Inglethorpe, as you supposed, but to her stepson, John Cavendish. And now, will you tell us what she said to you an hour later?
9: I've I've had a great shock, she said to me. I don't know what to do. A scandal between her husband and wife is a terrible thing, Dorcas. And she was holding a piece of paper in her hand.
10: But this second scandal she spoke of was not the same as the scandal with which she had confronted John Cavendish earlier that afternoon. Then she had been speaking of his liaison with Mrs Rakes, but now she was referring to a scandal which concerned herself. What did she do then?
9: She ordered me to light the fire in her room.
10: So, let us reconstruct what happened. At four o'clock, Mrs. Inglethorpe quarrels with her stepson and threatens to tell his wife about the affair with Mrs. Rakes. I believe you overheard the greater part of that conversation, madame.
6: Yes, I did. And you can understand why I chose to say nothing about it.
10: Immediately afterwards, Mrs. Inglethorpe makes a new will in favor of her husband cutting out John Cavendish. But then, at five, she tells Dorcas to light a fire so that she can destroy the will she has just made. So what happened in between, do you reckon? I believe that Mrs. Ingerthorpe had been anxious to send the new will off to her lawyers immediately, but she had no stamps. In the corner of her room stood her husband's desk. It was locked, but she had a key and opened it. In searching for the stamps, she came across a sheet of paper that she was never meant to see. This was the paper that Dorka saw her holding in her hand shortly afterwards, and this, I believe, Mrs. Camadish, was what you were searching for in her room on the night of her death.
6: I was certain that it was a letter from Mrs. Rakes to my husband. Mrs. Inglethorpe told me that it had nothing to do with him, but I didn't believe her.
10: So, what was this paper? It was a letter written in haste by the murderer to his accomplice when he realized that Mrs. Inglethorpe's death would take place 24 hours later than they had planned. I will read it to you. Dearest Evelyn, you will be anxious about hearing nothing. It is all right. Only it will be tonight instead of last night. There's a good time coming once the old woman is dead and out of the way. No one can possibly bring the crime home to me. That idea of yours about the bromide was a stroke of genius. But we must be careful. One full step. Here the letter breaks off. But there is... You
14: You a- devil! How did you get hold of
10: it? I don't think that need
15: concern us now, Mr. Inglethorpe. There's a Black Mariah outside. We don't want to keep it waiting, do we? You do, Miss Howard.
4: The moment I set eyes on you, I knew you were going to be trouble, you little... egg-shaped monster.
15: Did you really suspect Inglethorpe from the word go, Monsieur Poirot? Oh,
10: yes. There was no getting away from the fact that whoever stood to gain from his wife's death, he would benefit the most. I had no idea how the crime had been committed, but from what I knew of Mr. Inglethorpe, it would be very difficult to connect him with it. And then, when I began to investigate the Mrs. Rake's affair, my suspicions became a certainty. How do mean... If he had been seriously involved with her, his stubborn silence at the inquest would have been perfectly comprehensible. But when I discovered that it was known all over the village that it was John Cavendish who was enamoured of the pretty lady, Inglethorpe's behaviour took on a very different meaning. It was nonsense to pretend that he was afraid of a scandal. And so I was forced to the conclusion that by constantly refusing to say where he had been when the strychnine was purchased, he was doing his utmost to get himself arrested. And from that moment, I was equally determined that he should not be.
1: But why on earth should he want to be arrested?
10: Because we have a very curious law in this country, Mm -hmm. that if a man is once
15: acquitted of a crime... He can never be tried again for the same offence. And if it hadn't been for Monsieur Poirot, I should have fallen headlong into the trap. I would have arrested Inglethorpe, he would have revealed his irreproachable alibi, and he would have been safe for life. But even so, he was actually seeing Mrs. Wates.
10: Oh, yes, yes, they took... uh harmless little walks together along the lanes at times when Inglethorpe particularly wanted to establish an alibi for himself.
15: Like the time he was supposed to have bought the strychnine from the chemist's shop.
1: But I still don't see how he managed that. I mean, how could he be in two places at once?
10: Oh, is it possible? My poor friend. Have you not realized it was Miss Howard who went to the chemist's shop? Miss Howard? that black beard who else she is of a similar height her voice is rather manly and remember that she and Inglethorpe are cousins and that there is a distinct resemblance between them and do you think the use of the bromide really was her idea i am inclined to think she was the mastermind in the whole affair and had been planning mrs Inglethorpe's murder from the moment she first arrived at styles I fancy that she and Inglethorpe were already passionately involved with one another. So, all she had to do
15: was to introduce him into the household at Stiles and let him work his wicked will on Mrs. Inglethorpe.
1: Poor Emily. She saw herself as such a forceful character, but but underneath
10: it all
15: she was lonely and terribly gullible. But would Evelyn Howard really have the medical know-how to set up the poisoning?
10: Oh, no special knowledge was needed, my friend. All that she had to know, she could have picked up from one of Lawrence Cavendish's medical textbooks. She knew that Mrs. Inglethorpe had a box of bromide powders... and would occasionally take one at night. What could be easier than to dissolve one of them in her bottle of medicine? By the time Mrs.
15: Inglethorpe had swallowed the last fatal dose... Miss Howard would have engineered her silly quarrel with her and left
10: the house. Ah, yes, it was a clever idea. And if they had left it alone, the murder would probably never have been linked to them. What do you mean, if they left it alone? They wanted a scapegoat and decided to throw suspicion on John Cavendish. That is the sole reason for Evelyn Howard putting on the black beard and obtaining the strychnine.
1: So that she could sign Inglethorpe's name in John's handwriting.
10: Hmm. I
15: presume it must also have been Miss Howard who wrote the note telling Cavendish to go to Martin Spinning or wherever it was.
1: And again, she wrote it in his handwriting.
10: But then all their careful planning was thrown into confusion because Mrs. Inglethorpe did not take her medicine on the night they had calculated she would.
15: Even so, it was pretty stupid of Inglethorpe to write that letter.
10: I think his wife actually came into the room while he was writing it. He slipped it into his desk and went off for a walk.
1: And it was only by the merest chance she happened to find it. Mm. Poor Emily. It must have been a terrible shock for her.
15: I suppose Inglethorpe couldn't have realised it was missing until
10: after her death. But how on earth did he know where she'd put it? Ah, she always kept personal and important documents in her dispatch case. <sighs> Just imagine the feelings of Mr. Inglethorpe the following morning... ...when he hears that John Cavendish and Mr. Wells are to examine the contents of the case... ...and that I have the key. He panics and breaks it open. Every moment is vital. So, what do you think he does with the letter? I am the foggiest. Do not forget, the fire is not lit. So, he cannot burn it. Instead, he tears it. He tears it into long, thin strips... Rolls them into spills and puts them among the others in the jars on the mantelpiece. Oh, however, did you work that out?
14: <laughs>
10: so, you, mon ami. Me? Yes, you told me that my hands were shaking after I discovered that Mrs. Inglethorpe's dispatch case had been broken into and that I was straightening the spill jars on the mantelpiece. <laughs> but then, you see, I remembered that I had already straightened them earlier that morning. So, someone else must have moved them. And that is why you rushed back to Stiles.
15: Mm. Oh, so you see, Captain things. we owe it all to you. But I'd better be off. I must see these precious cousins off to their respective jails. Thank you, Monsieur Poirot. Once again, you've saved me from making an ass of myself.
10: I do think you might have given me a few hints instead of leading me up the garden path like that. Oh, I did nothing of the kind, mon ami. At most I permitted you to deceive yourself. But why? Because you have a nature so honest and a countenance so transparent that if I told you my ideas the very first time you looked upon Alfred Inglethorpe, that astute gentleman would, in your charming English phrase have smelt a rat.
1: I think I have more diplomacy than you give me credit for.
10: Oh, no, do not enrage yourself, my friend. Your help has been most invaluable. It is but your beautiful nature that gave me pause. I still think you might have given me a few clues. As it was, you left me to flounder about on my own,
1: suspecting practically everybody. Bowerstein, Mary Cavendish, Lawrence, but oh, particularly Lawrence.
10: After all, he was behaving very strange. You realize, of course, what was behind all that? Uh, no. Well, you did not see that he believed Mademoiselle Cynthia to be guilty of the crime? But that's ridiculous! No, 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 not in the least. The possibility was in my mind when I asked Mr. Wells about the provisions of the will. And it was Mademoiselle Cynthia who made up the bromide powders. Hmm. Shall I tell you what made Monsieur Laurence turn so pale? when he first entered his dying stepmother's room. What? He saw that the door into Mademoiselle Cynthia's room was unbolted. But he saw it was bolted. Exactly. And that confirmed my suspicion that it was not. He could not have realized that Mary Cavendish had opened it. He believed that Cynthia had done so, and he was determined to shield her. But why? Because he is in love with her. Oh, oh no, Poirot, you're quite wrong there. I know for a fact that he doesn't care for her at all. Who told you that? Cynthia herself. (laughs) They are like that, les femmes. Why else did he grind Mrs. Ingersoll's coffee cup into the floor with his heel? Because he suspected that Mademoiselle Cynthia may have had something to do with the poisoning and he was determined there should be no chance of analysing its contents. Ah, Was that why he kept on insisting that his stepmother had died from natural causes? Of course. Ah. He hoped as a trained doctor his opinion might carry some weight. And what about the extra coffee cup you wanted him to find? I was fairly certain that Mary Cavendish had hidden it to conceal the fact she had put a sleeping draught into Mademoiselle Cynthia's coffee. If I could prove that, then the young lady would be in the clear. Well, I'm glad it's all ended happily. Even John and Mary seem to be reconciled. And they have me to thank for that. You? What, do you not realize it was the trial that brought them together again? I was convinced that John Cavendish loved his wife and she him, but they had drifted far apart. You remember the day of John Cavendish's arrest, when you found me deliberating over a major decision? Yes, but I had no idea what it was all about. I was trying to decide whether or not I should clear John Cavendish at once. You mean you could have saved him from being brought to trial at all? Oh, yes, my friend but in the end I decided in favour of a woman's happiness. Nothing but the great danger through which they have passed could have brought these two proud souls together again.
1: I looked at him with silent amazement, the colossal cheek of the man. Who but Poirot would have thought a trial for murder would restore conjugal happiness.
10: One moment, Hastings. Do you see, over there, by the fountain,
1: Lawrence and Cynthia. Good good Lord, she's kissing him. And he's kissing her.
10: So perhaps he does not dislike her quite as much as she supposed.
6: They make a pretty pair, don't they? Thank goodness they've realized at last what was obvious to the rest of us. It wasn't obvious to me. I'm going back to London. Inspector Japp says John will be set free tomorrow morning. Thank you, Monsieur Poirot. Without you, he would be facing the gallows.
10: I am happy to have been of service, madame.
6: And thank you, Captain Hastings. (laughs) You helped me through my darkest hour. Goodbye. (coughs)
10: Goodbye. Ah, mon pauvre ami. You were in love with both of them, were you not?
1: Yes, they were two delightful women.
10: Console yourself, mon cher Hastings. One day, this terrible war will be over and we will hunt together again. (laughs) And then, who knows what the future will bring.
2: In Agatha Christie's The Mysterious Affair at Stiles, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, Captain Hastings, Simon Williams. Detective Inspector Japp, Philip Jackson. Emily Inglethorpe, Jill Balkan. Alfred Inglethorpe, Hugh Dixon. Evelyn Howard, Nicola McAuliffe. John Cavendish, Sean Arnold. Mary Cavendish, Susan Jamieson. Lawrence Cavendish, Nicholas Bolton. Cynthia Murdoch, Annabel Dowler. Dorcas, Hilda Schroeder. Dr. Baustein, Robert Portal. Mr. Wells, Richard Sims. The Coroner, Peter Howell. Mr. Mace, Harry Myers. Inspector Summerhays, Don McCorkindale, Mr. Phillips, Johan Meredith, Sir Ernest Heavyweather, Michael Mears, the costumier's assistant, Richard Katz. Other parts were played by members of the cast. The music was composed by Tom Smale. The mysterious affair at Styles was dramatized by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams.